Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome back to Scraps and Scrolls. This is part 13 of A Dance with Dragons. Hello, I am Sir Buckley, your resident green person here on the Isle, ready to take you through another four chapters as we race towards the end of this massive, massive book. Again, hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me here today. It's always so lovely to see you. This episode is coming to you a little bit later than I would like. We're still playing catch up with the guys over at History of Westeros. They're just too quick for us. We will get there eventually. I know they released part 14 yesterday. I'm talking to you here on the Monday morning. This is 13 today. Don't worry, we will get there. We'll get back in the sink. But it's not too much trouble, is it? You know what these chapters are all about. You can enjoy both as you have been throughout this whole project. So no worries there. But of course, as you always do, I'm sure, make sure you are subscribing and liking, sharing all of the season and share its work because it is so very well deserved. Now it's been a little bit of a while since I've spoken to you, a little bit longer than I planned. Anyway, I'd hoped to get this part out last week, but that was not to happen. So I had a little bit of extra work on, which I'll talk about in a second. Obviously for most of us, the situation is unchanged anyway. We're all in a bit of a tight spot around the world. The very, very important week over in the US, I'm sure you know. I don't think I've spoken to you since the Capitol building riots and all that disgustingness. I won't bring you back to the memories now, but just know for all of you out there, either in the US or just, you know, nice people around the world that are concerned about them we're all extending a big big hug to you from here on the aisle because like i say it's a rough time and well we're all very concerned and we give the warm warm hugs like i say the situation is tough over here in the uk as well we're in our third lockdown you might have seen i think it was last week or the week before about a special episode of the other faces pleading with my fellow people here in the uk to please Please take this lockdown seriously, as seriously as possible, because it really can't get as a more serious level for our hospitals and for lives lost and for everything else. So I'll say again quickly, please do it properly. Absolutely take it seriously. Do not leave your house unless absolutely required. And I'm all for tougher restrictions. Please, Mr. Boris and Mr. Government, hand it down to us. Let's do this properly. Let's kick it together. And then maybe we can actually get back to some normalcy. That would be good. Or more importantly, we could save some damn lives, couldn't we? So let's do that. Don't rely on the vaccine. Act like there's nothing like that. Act like it. The floor is lava, please. Outside your house is lava. Do not go. It's absolutely necessary. But we'll leave that there for now. I know this podcast and this aisle is sometimes a good release for some of you, or distraction, or just helps with the general situation. Always lovely to hear those messages and comments. So please do share those either publicly or privately, whichever you wish. You can always get in contact with me and just let me know because it makes it all a lot more worthwhile and it keeps my engine ticking. While I'm still waiting for the solar energy to return, I will admit there's a little break in the clouds this morning on Doggy Walk. So not too bad. Hopefully that'll come through in today's podcast. Now, I've already mentioned Aziz and the Share, who we always have to thank, of course. But there are some other people in the patrons. The ones that really keep this aisle on the move. I'm talking about Aegon the Sixth. I'm talking about Law Commander Namian Darklin, KM, and of course, Archmaster June, healer of the Lesser Poxes, still out there on the front lines doing the hard work. We salute you, each and every one of us, Archmaster June, and all your colleagues around the world for saving our lives so constantly. Now, I mentioned earlier, I had a little bit of news today before we get going, and that is that this past weekend, I was lucky enough, very, very lucky, very, very honoured enough to be invited back over to Radio Westeros for one of their Winds of Winter live streams. I think this is the third one I've been on now. I think we did one for the prologue and then one for Lady Stoneheart, so you know how much I enjoyed those. That was back in last summer. I was able to get back on it now. So to talk with Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy, who I don't need to tell you, are amazing in their skill and knowledge and their takes, but also just amazing as people. So it's always lovely to chat with them. Our subject this time around was Dawn, or more specifically, Area Hotar. 
And if you've been listening, you know I'm very much into Dawn all the time. I like thinking about all those types of things. We talked about area, we talked about Dawn in general and Duran and what's going to happen with the Sand Snakes, specifically Obara, of course, and Dark Star and Balon Swan and Marcella and everything else. So that was a great, great time. You know where to find them. I'm sure you're already listening. Maybe you're even there. Maybe you gave a wave in the live chat and the live stream there. If so, thank you very much. But you can always go back and check that on YouTube. I think they'll be putting up a podcast version soon enough. So as I say, I was more than honoured and I just want to thank Yoke Boy and Lady Gwen again for inviting me on. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. Hopefully I'll be back there again soon for another subject because there's lots to talk about and wins. I think their next one is going to be about the Danes and what that could all lead to. So they're going to stick in Dawn. I think they've been talking about Dawn recently anyway. So if you're like me and really, really interested in that side of the plot and what's happening there, definitely tune in to Radio Restaurants and everything they're doing, which again, I'm sure you are. So thank you both for having me. It was a lot of fun. The Princess Zelda was sleeping next to me the whole time. You even get a little glimpse of her, I think, on the camera there. As well as how gigantic my hair has grown in this lockdown. So there's lots for you to see. Go and have a look at that. But with that out of the way, let's now talk part 13. Let's talk our four chapters today. What have we got going on? We've got another big four for you. We're racing forward. We will begin today with Theon 6 slash The Ghost of Windfell. An eerie, very, very cold chapter that works well with last week's Asher chapter, of course. These ones keep being in perfect sync, really. We've seen the snows and the storms steadily build in Winterfell, but now it really, it really, really hits. And to be honest, this is one of the most enjoyable chapters for seeing the rot that is the Bolton Alliance and how that's just going to all fall apart. We really, really like that, especially as we race towards the end, really, of this Fion arc. We're getting closer and closer. From there, it's on to Tyrion 10, our lone Essos trip of the week. No Daenerys this week, very rare indeed. And that is to discover the life of the slave. We didn't have to wait too long for that cliffhanger from the last Tyrion, from Tyrion 9. Now we get to see what's happened, where he is, and what can come of this new life in chains, how that's going to affect Tyrion. But to be honest, we're going to be waiting for the one after, I think, a little bit more, because today, one time only, everybody, we have Jamie, our one Jamie chapter of A Dance with Dragons. You know, I'm a big old Jamie chapter fan after Storm and Feast. We've been waiting for a long, long time. So like last week when we had Aya, that was a blessing just to get that kind of out of the blue. Now we have the same with Jamie, except we only get one. So we've really got to appreciate it. That's our third chapter and then we'll finish back in the north. That's John 10 as we celebrate the third and final wedding of this book and we get another mic drop moment at the end. So some big, important chapters. I've kept you from them long enough. Let's dive straight in, shall we? And as I mentioned, we're starring Theon 6, the Ghost of Winterfell. Let's go. For those of you keeping score, we are now at the halfway of the UK physical book split release. I'm sure much of you are the same where you've got, if you've got physical books, paperback versions of Dance of Dragons, they are split into two, or at least they were originally. And for my version, we've just gone to the second half. So we're switching over from part one, which had the subtitle Dreams and Dust. Okay. This second part is named After the Feast. All right. Sure. We're not really sure where they got those subtitles from. I guess After the Feast makes a bit more difference because we are following up on the feast storylines, but not sure who chose those. Anyway, not really the here or there, is it? Let's get to the man we're talking about today. You might have noticed we've had some increased Fion frequency. We actually did miss him on last week's episode, but other than that, he's appeared in three of the last four chunks. And we're also going to have him next week for his final chapter. So that's three Fion POVs in the last ten chapters so far. And only the Triforce of John, Danny, and Tyrion can match that at any point in the book. So Fion is really taking a major shift into a prominent character of this book after the fairly slow start. That was kind of spaced out. Now he's really going through it. 
Although, like I say, we've only got a five chapter wait until the end of Fionn's arc altogether in the superbly named Fionn 1, just to confuse us a little bit. So we are going to have another plot thread finish slightly early as Essos and some of the feast storylines come to dominate that final quarter. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week because we are entering kind of the last phase of dance next week, if I'm honest. But for him, for Fionn, it feels like a proper race and focus on his arc. He gets so much attention given in a short space of time. And this chapter today is really where it all starts to pay off, where we start to see the point of why we've got this arc in the first place. We still have to wait for that to all really come off, of course, in his seventh and last chapter. But this is where we get that deep down feeling of something happening. And that means it's all very, very exciting, isn't it? We're going to enter with a downtrodden Fionn, still bearing the weight of being alone in this castle, like we've explored a lot in the last two chapters, really. It's a Fionn with no purpose other than waiting for death. But recall, we had the awakening of ghosts at the end of his last chapter down in the crypts both in terms of stolen swords and in the memories of Barbary Dustin. So we've been waiting to see if that conversation turns into anything real, but more importantly, what the awakened ghost in Fion can do. Given the chapter title today, that's definitely something we're going to be looking at. By this chapter's end, we'll at least have Fion with a purpose again, or we're going to get the hint of it at least. But in all fairness, as much as this is a Fionn chapter, and we're going to be talking a lot about him, I think really the focus shifts from him a little bit as we get to see things just start to fall apart in this Bolton Alliance, in this thing that we've got going on inside Windfell. And that's what I mean by the, the paying off feeling, because we've been waiting, we've been seeing the crack, we've been identifying the tension, but now it all really starts to pay off. And it's going to get worse later on, sure, but this is one of the best examples we get in one single chapter, as the mysteries and people turning on each other, and the storm getting even worse, basically just showing this regime to be inept and rubbish and about to fall apart. So we quite like to read that, don't we? If you're a fan of the Stannis forces or just the Starks in general, this can actually be a pretty enjoyable chapter in some ways, which is weird to say for Fionn because normally they're the dark chapters. But this is definitely one of the best for getting that feeling back. So let's dive right into it. And we're going to start as we mean to go on. We have a dead man in Winterfell. We have a body buried under snow and we have no idea how it got there. And get ready because we're going to see plenty of that throughout this chapter. I think there's some symbolism in this body being covered by snow. Snow specifically. Remember, everyone believed themselves nice and safe behind these walls of Winterfell. But no, no, no. That is not true. Winter is coming for all. The snow seeps in. And like I said earlier, we've already seen the cracks in this alliance, but that was mainly kind of like on the surface. It wasn't going too deep. Now, thanks to this discovery, we'll see true discord sown between all the different parties as they become suspicious of each other. We'll see how their lies and distrustful nature make them essentially eat their own tails, as we've seen a hundred times in King's Landing. These people suspect each other because this is something that they would have all done as well. They're all corrupt and evil in their way, and it's going to start paying off. The rumbles of crumbling can really be heard now, which, as I mentioned a minute ago, is very, very fun. We've already had the hints, we've already seen winter has grown, and first-timers need something to balance out the hardship we saw for Stannis's camp last time out. Surely the odds can't be that tipped in the Boltons' favour. I mean, it looks like they've already won this war, doesn't it? Stannis looks like he is out, almost. So George is now going to balance things a little bit more and show, no, actually, the Boltons are in a bad way as well. So big grins on our faces. In that way of thinking, we can almost see this as the beginning of Winterfell's own cold count. You'll remember the cold count from Ashes chapters. Sure, we're going to have much lower numbers, but it's almost as damaging in its way. Because what does this murder say? It says there's no safety anywhere. It says we can start blaming each other. And again, we get to enjoy the fact that any of these people, anyone in this castle, can now be picked off at any time. That's what this body is saying, even if no one's admitting it just yet. It's almost as if Winterfell itself is doing the defending. Plus, you know, 
it's a mystery. We don't know who killed this person. And we all love a good mystery, don't we? And this is just in the first instance. So like I say, everyone is doing a grand old job of denial. Plus this corpse that we find at the bottom of the inner wall with his neck broken is essentially a nobody. That's how they all see it anyway, which makes it pretty easy for the nobles to ignore. Oh, it's just someone who's died. Is he someone important? No, I don't think so. Okay, we'll leave it then. Doesn't matter, does it? But we're going to see that attitude change later on once it is one of their own. This is going to become more important and then it's going to really make them sweat. But for now, like I say, it's just an easy dismissal and back to breakfast. It's only Fion who thinks of the ill logic that someone would climb such a dangerous stairway to get to the top of the wall and then take a piss as they've all said that's the reason. Oh, he went up there. Oh, he was drunk. He fell off. Doesn't matter. But Fion is the one to challenge the idea even if he's not going to say so out loud because no one's going to listen to him. And again, no one cares at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what he was doing. He wasn't able. Let's get on with it. But we do identify him as a man of Roger Riswell's. And you remember last time we had a Fionn chapter, we saw Rickard Riswell in the arms of one of the Spearwives. So that's our first little link or hint to who is truly behind the murders. Just keep that tab open in your mind. We're going to have to kind of revisit it as we go here. Now, Fionn doesn't think that. No one else is bringing it up. But for us readers, the clues are mounting. So again, just tuck that away in your top pocket. Now, the people in charge, the nobles, they can say this. Forget about it. Doesn't matter to us. But the general people of the castle, they're not going to be forgetting about it in a rush. When you've been manning a cold castle and staring at nothing but walls of snow for weeks on end, you're going to talk about the first interesting thing to happen in ages, aren't you? Especially when it's one of your own who died. So this is where we get the first real cracks. They're small now, they'll be large later. Already there's chatter of Stannis having friends in the castle, which obviously indicates some party or parties being untrustworthy. That, plus it lowers morale slash confidence in their own ability to defend by stating that such a thing could happen unnoticed. So that then puts everyone at ill ease with the idea that they could be next. If this is one of their own, if this is just a random guy with no real purpose to his murder, then any of them could fall off the wall next or whatever it might be, couldn't they? So it's just, again, it's just cracks. It's just lowering everyone's confidence, puts everyone on edge a bit. Every shadow seems a little bit darker. Every noise in the night is just going to make you jump that little bit quicker. The tension is really, really on height here right at the beginning. And sure, at the moment, it's just presented as interesting banter, but don't think that thoughts such as these aren't going to creep into these people's heads the next time they're alone on guard duty at night. They're going to start wondering, aren't they? Because again, the majority of them are as unremarkable as this Riswell man. So if it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone, let's all speculate wildly about the sources, because what else are we going to do? And all of it is about inspiring a lack of confidence in the Bolton cause. Last time, it was all but a certainty that Stannis would fail and they would win. That was what everyone was saying. Everyone was very happy and confident. And that's still the official line, but it's being called into question more now if people are going to be dying mysteriously because why would they be dying unless Stannis has something to do with it? Stannis might have people inside. Whoever the killer is, they are incredibly clever in knowing the knock-on effect this is going to have. We've already discussed in the past that we only need the Bolton Alliance to stumble for it to shatter. Justin Massey brought that up in Ash's chapter last time. Well, that snowball has started to roll and it's only going to pick up speed all the way through this chapter. Again, Keep that in mind because it really is a kind of steady progress as we make our way through these pages. As seen with the talk that Stannis could easily be outside right now waiting to attack, well that's just showing exactly what I mean, doesn't it? I doubt anyone was brave enough to mention that idea before this court showed up, but the idea is planted now. It will grow and grow on its own, especially as the murders keep piling up. We know that George likes to build and build upon one idea within a chapter, and this is really a prime example. It's a bit of an opening of Pandora's box. There's basically no visibility outside Winterfell. They don't know that Stannis isn't there. They've got no idea he's trapped in the Croftress village under the pile of snow, do they? So that unknowing, that potential, is enough to freak them all out and therefore the cracks get a bit wider. The idea that Stannis could be so close is, like I say, born from the fact that the snows have increased. 
as they have for Stannis and Asher, so they have for Winterfell. The place is blanketed, covered just as much as the Crofters' village. There's huge great drifts climbing up the walls when it was only knee height last time. And as I mentioned, the visibility is so bad, you have to tie yourself to someone just to cross the yard. How unimaginable is that? You can't even get across the yard without getting lost. And in tandem, how hard is it going to be to defend a siege against that? We know Stannis has it much worse, but the people inside this castle only suspect and hope that. This is still very damning to morale, and even worse for the general running of the castle. This is a big place, there's a lot of things to consider, and it's really, really hard now with this kind of climate, this kind of storm going on. And just a quick little note here, it's mentioned that Hostein Frey is the first to be physically injured by the winter itself when he loses his ear to frostbite. So that just makes us chuckle. What a good start to the chapter for us pro-Stark anti-Frey type fans. Unfortunately though, we do have to feel bad for the horses. Half of them are left out in this snowy yard to face the elements. The others are left in the doomed stables. That gets mentioned at the beginning here. We're going to come back to that later. Such hardships inspire the dodgy talk again, and the symmetry between the Bolton and Baratheon camps is almost amusing, as we have more talk of curses from the old gods and this storm being sent as a punishment. Again, think back to Asher's chapter. This old Lord Locke is talking right now, so no one takes too much notice, but we should point out that to be punished would imply that they have done something wrong. The official Bolton line is that they have done nothing wrong, this is all perfectly legal. So Lord Locke here might be letting slip what he really thinks about what the Boltons are up to and how legitimate they are and what everyone really thinks of them. We've discussed that plenty of times, that this is a paper-thin alliance. Most of the families here, most of the houses, don't buy into what the Boltons are selling whatsoever, they're just forced to be here. So again, this is just starting to trickle out between those cracks. In turn, that inspires more talk between the men. Some cling to the idea that Stannis probably has it worse because at least they've got walls and stuff like that. Stannis doesn't. However bad it might be for them, it must be worse for him, which we know to be true, but the ideas are planted. These men don't know Stannis has it bad, they only know that they do. So their minds fill in the gaps for them. Maybe Stannis is right outside. Maybe he has Melisandre with him to keep their army warm. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe we're all doomed. This is the kind of slow build-up we must count throughout the chapter, the slowly increased belief that they can fail, which was kickstarted by finding this body at the beginning, and it's going to get worse with everybody we find. It's so very enjoyable for us as readers to see this snowball gain speed. They were all so confident in coming here to our beloved Winterfell, and then they corrupted it with their evil, so now the sense of comeuppance is really growing. And to be fair, okay, that doesn't extend to the, you know, the general person, the guard on the door, but for the Boltons, for Roos and Ramsay especially, yeah, we really do get that sense of comeuppance and we like it. One of the forms this comeuppance takes is turning on one another. We'll see much larger examples later on, but first is this man and his talk of Melisandre being just a bit too loud. When Ramsay hears, we all know what's going to be coming, don't we? Because we know Ramsay. And we end up with the Boltons shooting themselves in the foot, really. When Ramsay has this man seized, dragged up to the top of the gate, and then thrown out into the snow to die in the storm. Let's remember, you have an upcoming battle where you're going to require all the men you can get. Plenty are going to be lost to starvation and cold. Plus, you already have a murderer in your midst, apparently. Yet you are going to throw away one of your assets for just something he said. It's laughable. It's idiotic. Of course, we will see more symmetry in Asher's next chapter as well. Well, both groups are going to be foolish in their own ways, we'll save that for next time, but it's another self-blow to the morale. Now your own bosses might hurl you out into the cold if you speak your mind. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence, does it? In fact, it makes the higher-ups look weak and worried, so it's just 
that crumbling down feeling again. Although we do also get a cool reminder of the Winterfell gates that we can nerd over, especially if you're me, and the fact that they are freezing or stuck. Now, is that going to have a role to play in this or later battles? Will that maybe stop reinforcements getting to the battle outside? Or maybe it'll even stop people trying to escape Winterfell if things go bad? That's complete speculation right now, but these type of things, they might matter in the future. But other than those side notes right there, we have this man being thrown off the walls to land in the snow. So we get a little bit of foreshadowing for Theon's own arc as well. At the moment, the snow is still low enough that this man breaks his leg. At the end of Theon's last chapter, we'll be left wondering if the same fate has befallen him and Jane. Plus, it turns out the hole in Devil was pointless anyway. Even some of the lords still think that Stannis could be right outside, and they probably can't just throw a Hofarumba off the walls to shut him up, can they? This is particularly bad coming from him, as Roose knows he's one of the ones who are only here begrudgingly, and he already suspects that Hofer might betray them. So around and around that snowball tumbles, it's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? It's left to Barbary Dustin right here to restore the party line to calm everyone down. That Stannis is all but done thanks to the storm, don't worry about it. And that's a fair enough statement, but she also tempts fate by saying, let winter do its worst. Tut tut tut, no true Northman would say such a thing, as Fionn himself reacts to with this quote. A few more days and the snows will bury him, and his army both, and us as well, thought Fionn, marvelling at her folly. Lady Barbary was of the north, and should have known better. The old gods might be listening. So we've got some creepy foreboding there. And again, remember that Fionn is very much thinking about the old gods and where they are and what they can do because of his recent trips to the godswood and listening to the heart tree and that kind of thing. So this is really on his mind. He doesn't think you should be messing around with them. That feeling is only doubled down on when Fionn describes their pathetic supper and the fact that the average man doesn't fail to notice that the upper buzz are still eating ham. Hmm, ham versus peas porridge and yesterday's bread. And that is causing muttering, just muttering for now, but it's still very, very exciting for us. The difference between the nobles and the common man in what they eat has been present right through this series, right from Tyrion being at the Green Fork and Bronn having to go fishing, while Tywin and his bunch had suckling pig, just to give you a real blast from the past. That might have been accepted back then, but it's not going to fly for too much longer up here as the food dwindles and the cold increases. We're supposed to all be in this together, aren't they? We're as cold as you. We work just as hard. So the Bolton Alliance has even more cracks than we thought, and we start to love the idea that we'll finally see some of the lower class slash ranked soldiers attack this unfairness, both as a comeuppance to the Boltons and the inequality seen throughout the series. George is really giving his all to make us grin in this early part of the chapter, isn't he? He's really throwing us a lot of bones. It's while eating his rubbish dinner that Fionn has his second visit from the Spearwives, and it doesn't start out so great when he tells her off for touching him, which is obviously a tough part of his issues with his own body right now. This time the Spearwife is Holly, one of the younger ones, so we're now slowly building up this mini-cast for their huge part to play on Fionn's last chapter next time, to say nothing of the rest of this one as well, they do get involved in this chapter too. That makes for some good timing for reminding us of other factions and secret secrets within Winterfell such as Mance, as well as shoving the answer for these murders in our face even if we don't really know it yet. Like Rowan before her, Holly tries sexual temptation first, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We know this is how the Spearwives are working the men of Winterfell. And as of the first time, Fionn reflects on how the previous version of himself would have fallen for it straight away, but no more. So he cuts to the bone and asks Holly what she wants. Like with Barbary, Holly wants access to the crypts. She says it is for touching, but we all know that to be a cover. Fionn echoes our own thoughts when he traces that back to Abel slash Mance, and we're left wondering what he's up to yet again. We've already asked a few of these questions in the past, so I'm not going to revisit it too much here. But why would Mance want to get into the crypts, do you think? Is it some of those secrets that we discussed previously? Or is this a new part of the plan to rescue Aya? 
Will he hide her down there as the, as the previous Stark daughter was hid in the Legends of Old? Or perhaps he's looking for it as a hiding place for when the battle really comes, maybe as a last resort. We know it fits in with his Bail the Bard obsession, so it could be any of them, really. We still don't know. Holly smartly refuses to implicate Mance just yet, but she does say that she could set up a meeting between the two of them. Obviously, she's still saying the word able. Fionn's not to know it's Mance yet. Perhaps Mance is getting desperate and he knows that he's up against the clock. Whatever the reason, Fionn still thinks it is a plot, as he did before, but is not actually thinking that Ramsay is involved for once, which is key. There's a little bit of a step on his progression there. Instead, he figures that Abel is just looking for a way out and figures that Fionn would know. Either he thinks the storm is going to kill them all, or Stannis will win, or maybe he just doesn't want himself or his spearwives anywhere near the Boltons, and all three are acceptable answers. For all we know, it really is just that simple, even with all our wondering. Maybe Mance has clicked that Aya is not Aya, maybe he doesn't care either way and he just wants to get back to the wall. It's really immaterial for the moment, because Fionn will not risk Ramsay's wrath for any such ploy, he's just not going to do it. Still, such an idea does stick with him as he revisits the spot where they threw the free rider off the wall a couple of pages ago. And note that even Theon, who knows this castle best, has to grope his way along the wall just to find the required staircase. The visibility is insane. While up there on the wall, he revisits his own thoughts of escape that he held in his last chapter. Now, he knows the drop to not be deadly, the man only broke his leg at least not immediately deadly, so we have an even clearer foreshadowing for his last chapter. It's not the idea of a broken leg or even freezing to death that persuades him not to though, it's the idea of Ramsay on the hunt. Again, he's just not going to risk that. To persuade himself of such, he says that he must remember his name, but he doesn't actually say it, doesn't actually say Reek himself, that's important. Because in fact, that particular word hasn't been mentioned for this entire chapter just yet. That's worth taking note of, I think. The next day moves the feeling of the chapter forward, as we have not one but two more mysterious deaths. First, in the morning, is the squire of Aenys Frey, found nude and frozen in the lichyard. As with before, alcohol is put forth as the reason, and as with before, it's Theon left to point out the stupidity of it all. The man might have been drunk, but why on earth would he take all of his clothes off? And the answer is, he wouldn't, would he? But if they focus on that, then at least there's some very difficult questions that upper buzz don't want to answer, or don't want to even ask. So they continue to stick their heads under the snow and pretend that everything is just fine. But just note, we're moving up the scale slightly, we've already moved to a man at arms, up to a squire now so they're getting slightly more important and this isn't even allowed to settle before we're told of a second death a flint crossbowman with a broken skull in the stables sounds a bit like cluedo doesn't it again there is a lucky excuse in the horses having kicked him but fion remains suspicious he doesn't say anything out loud but then neither does anyone else but i bet they're all thinking the same thing it's crucial that the victims are spread out across the cross section of the castle so far we've had a riswell a fray and a flint so it's not clearly one faction over the other, and that therefore creates maximum confusion and unease. It could happen to anyone. It's important that Fionn compares this back with his own experience as ruler of Winterfell, when people were dying left, right and centre, and he was doing his best to plug all the holes in his sinking ship. We remember what that felt like, and we can really relish that the same thing, the same stress, is happening to Roose Bolton right now. We see the snowball reach a new level now, when the assembled lords begin arguing about what's going on. None of them mention the murder specifically, because that would indicate either weakness, or lack of faith, or even guilt maybe, but we can clearly see it's got them all rumbled, on top of the cold, and the lack of food, and the that ever looming possibility of Stannis. They want to get out of here, they want this thing done with. And it's really important to know that they are arguing openly in front of everybody in the hall. So that's a really bad sign for how things are being held together. It's not how it should be done. It should be a closed door affair, but they're all too wound up to bother with that. So again, we love to see it. 
At first, it's the same old argument. Go out to ride against Stannis or wait in here for him to come to them. The phrase of bored, they want to get moving, they want to get out of here. Some of the Northerners are more hesitant, having respect for Winter as they do. And there's the important note that their scouts are starting to not even return. And they're blind enough, aren't they? Thanks to the snow, without the loss of their important scout. The conversation then takes a critical turn when Wyman Mandley speaks up in support of Hostine Frey's idea to ride out. Clearly, Wyman knows the phrase would be absolute toast if they ride out into this storm, or at the very least, he'd have the opportunity to deal some more vengeance. So he'll do whatever he can to speed up such an idea, even if he has to fake teaming up and supporting him. Or perhaps he's just trying to goad Hostine and Aenys. If so, he does that exceedingly well. As soon as Hostine turns the question back on Wyman about where the three messing frays are, Wyman can obviously not resist biting back when Hostine tries to paint the three as saint-like guests who did Wyman a favour. His acting can only go so far, he just can't resist mm, snapping back a little bit there. So Wyman uses this as an opportunity to excuse himself, all while getting a few subtle digs onto the nature of the three. We saw with Davos how much he loathes them, so he loves getting the chance to finally express that, if only a little. He points out the phrase did nothing. They brought back bones, not a living son, and he attributes that to Tyrion Lannister, no one else. As for guests, Wyman now publicly announces he gave the free phrase gifts upon their parting, and this was witnessed by others, so in the ancient laws of the North and their gods he's done no wrong. But that is besides the point for now, because Aenys is going to accuse him anyway. So Wyman sheds a bit of his disguise by getting angry, and then Hostine responds with a threat, and it all builds and builds, and before you know it, White Harbour Knights are on their feet and the whole thing looks like it's going to explode straight off. The higher-ups have to run about quenching the fire before it can spread but the damage is done. Another safety rope of this alliance has broken. We've explored how many little cracks there are that can fissure, but we all know that the Mandalese versus the phrase is the biggest one. In name, in number, in the food at stake as risk as well, these two going at one another would be catastrophic and pretty much break the whole thing apart. They'd be doing Stannis' job for him. And this is what we've been waiting for since Davos 4, or even since the Red Wedding in some ways, and it is delicious. The chapter, again, is building and building, everything is getting worse and worse, and it results in this, one of the very, one of the most enjoyable lines for us to read in the book, one of the most relishable lines. It fell to Roger Wiswell and Barbary Dustin to calm them with quiet words. Bruce Bolton said nothing at all, but Theon Greyjoy saw a look in his pale eyes that he had never seen before, an uneasiness, even a hint of fear. See, he knows what the situation really is. This implacable man who sees it all as a game and has no emotions or anything like that, he knows he's screwed. They are sitting on a time bomb and everything he so carefully curated is bound to come collapsing down around him at any moment. And if it does, it won't only be the end of him, but likely his house as well. His comeuppance is finally here, he has failed. So that's a superb feeling for us, isn't it? But the snowball keeps rolling. Things are actually going to go from bad to worse now. And we can imagine Roos wringing his hands over this to say nothing of everyone else, realising what they've brought into, what situation they're actually in. Next is the stables collapsing under the weight of the snow. So we've got that winter theme again, just the storm coming for you. Unfortunately, it takes out all of the horses within, so we don't like that bit. And that, therefore, results in moving all of the surviving horses into the Great Hall because where else are they going to go? They need these horses. It's a matter of survival even without an upcoming battle. But it results in the once grand hall of the Starks now stinking to high heaven, becoming filthy and disgusting and just unbearable to live with. And really, there's no greater symbol for what the Bolton rule has become. On top of that, there is now another corpse, and this one is another step up, but it is one that we can put a thumbs up to, because the body belongs to none other than that of Yellow Dick, one of Ramsay's bunch. So we know he's an evil sod who deserved it, but we also know the killer, or killers, are stepping up their game. This is now a real strike against House Bolton, and an obvious risk to Ramsay's wrath, yet they did it anyway. So these guys, whoever they are, are big time. Most importantly is that there's no chance of passing this one off as an accident. 
if you did happen to believe the first few tales anyway. This one is very, very obviously a murder, and it's for that reason Roos himself gets involved when he tells them to burn the body and hide the tail. He knows the precariousness of the situation, and he doesn't need it getting out there. That proves woefully naive, of course. The story gets out as we knew it would, and now all those hidden worries from before are out there in the open, destroying confidence, morale, and trust in the process. There is a murderer, at least one, roaming the dark and snowy nights. It is bad news for everybody. And of course, Ramsay rages as you would expect at the news of Yellow Dick, but Winter provides no answers for him. Mance is employed to lighten the atmosphere, and he succeeds after a fashion, but the rest of the bastard boys are grumpy after their teammates' killing, and they choose to express that by mocking and threatening Fionn. So Fionn takes his leave of the disgusting hall as quick as he can. Although I will note very quickly here that Mance was saying, The maids that bloom in spring. We all expect some maids to come here and make their mark in the world, whether that be the Stark girls or maybe Brienne. Whichever it is, we can see a little bit of a symbolism, a little bit of a link in there. Now this song's actually only mentioned once before, down at the Peach, when it was sung by Tom Sevenstream, so just bear that in mind. Outside, Fionn experiences the full wrath of winter as the storm comes down upon him. Yet he actually finds something welcoming in it. The snowflakes he names as kisses. He says he almost finds peace. Perhaps it is similar to Tyrion and that storm he chose to experience up on the deck. Maybe he's getting that same catharsis. Perhaps it is another link back to his semi-Stark status. Either way, it's a moment of true peace for Fionn. And that's a pretty major thing, especially his finding it in Windfell. That fact might turn out to be important timing-wise, as out of the snow... Fionn walks into a hooded man with a dagger, one who named him not only Turncloak, but Kinslayer as well. That's a new one, that insult doesn't normally get thrown at Fionn. He tries to defend against it by saying he was ironborn, but the stranger is having none of it. Later, it might help Fionn focus on how he is part of that family, and publicly, he is therefore a Kinslayer, even if it's adopted kin. He knows the truth of that deep down he always has, and we did cover it a little bit in his last chapter. Or, you could even say that the people of Winterfell were his kin, in a way, and he murdered some of them. But Fionn hits on the big mystery that we're all thinking about. Is this the hidden killer that we're all looking for? It's a very good question. We've really got no answers of who this guy is, but he does seem to really be sticking out of the crowd a bit, so he's got to be of some importance, doesn't he? Now, Fionn is thinking this because the man looks to be threatening him, but when Fionn shows evidence of his punishments via Ramsay, the hooded man decides that that's a more appropriate punishment and moves on. So away he goes, and our wondering mysteries have to follow him. Really, I've got no idea for who the hooded man is, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, or your theories, so you have to let me know on that one, but he definitely does seem important. Fionn heads back up to his little spot on the walls, even as the storm nearly freezes him to death. It has now become so strong you can't even see the other side of the moat anymore. Wow. That boxed-in feeling of the world literally being a wall of snow, and everything being winter, which is a theme we're sure to explore in the next book, is now full-on addressed by Fionn. We've had a few important little moments here and there in the Fionn chapters, emotional bubbles of huge significance, and this next one is no different. Here's the quote. The world is gone. King's Landing, Riverrun, Pike and the Iron Islands, all the Seven Kingdoms, every place that he had ever known, every place that he'd ever read about or dreamed of, all gone. Only Winterfell remained. That first thing reminds me of an old John line where he was thinking about the loss of access he would have to the world back in Game of Thrones there. But more importantly, it's the pointing out that Winterfell is all. Winterfell is everything which is important to Fionn here, but it's also very likely to be true for everyone when we reach the end point of the series. I think this is the hint that at some point, Winter, maybe the others, will cover everything and only Winterfell will remain. That's my theory. Here's another important quote. He was trapped here with the ghosts, the old ghosts and the crypts and the younger ones he had made himself, Micken and Farlin, Gynir Rednose, Agar, Gelmar the Grim, the miller's wife from Acorn Water and her two young sons and all the rest. My work, my ghosts. They're all here, and they are angry. He thought of the crypts, and of those missing swords. 
So that's obviously the big follow-on, the big link from last week. What have those missing swords let out? Those missing swords are only missing indirectly because of Theon. Is it the old ghosts? Is it the ones he made? Or is it the ghost within himself like we talked about before? Either way, the point is there's no escape anymore. Theon must face down his own crimes and those who suffered because of them. He must address them. He must pay for them. There must be justice in this, the house of Eddard Stark. That's just a wonderful, wonderful moment to read. Really poignant, amazing George linking it all together, as we always know. Remember Theon's status as a villain. Remember what he did and how he hated him for it. How often do readers get to truly see a villain feel the weight of what they've done, which is the only true punishment in the world? Hardly ever, really. Not just in this series, this is something we hardly ever get to see. Yet George has leaned into it full throttle, and I think we all agree, I don't think I'm uncovering anything new, that this is truly some of his best work, this massive fear on arc, and him really having to see things in the face here and feel the weight of it. But this is just a wonderful paragraph, this is brilliant. So again, well done George. But such good must be balanced out, and so it is that later on Steelshanks Walton reappears to bring film back before Roose Bolton and his assembled lords in Ned's old solar. There, they address the possibility that Theon is indeed the Winterfell murderer because he's been wandering the castle and has been seen at all the relative spots. Plus, you know, if anyone has the motivation, it's probably this guy. Even while being accused, Theon keeps on of these recent breakthroughs. You were a hostage, Bolton said. Yes, my lord, a hostage. It was my home, though, he thought. Not a true home, but the best I ever knew. So, well, there you go. If you've been paying attention for any Theon chapters in this series, you know this is a gigantic stride forwards for him. Finally realising the truth of this crisis that's dominated his arc from the beginning. This is us all sighing, going, oh. finally, he gets it. The guy actually gets it. Theon obviously denies his part in these murders, but the lords and lady require further proof. So he's made to take off his gloves and reveal his Ramsay wounds. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be reminded. He doesn't want the shame. He doesn't even want to address them because it's an obvious reminder of pain and what Ramsay could still do to him, but he does it anyway. And we should note that he has been left with four fingers remaining on his right hand, but only three on the left, and it's the cruel of three as well. His pinky, his middle finger, and his thumb, so it's very difficult to do anything at all with that left hand now, to bear that in mind. But the right can still grip a knife or swing a club or something like that. So in fairness, we do have to wonder if Theon is truly the killer. He has been to the right places, he could grab a dagger, like we say, or could shove someone or club someone. We've not seen it happen, but perhaps he is having a psychotic episode and detaching from himself. I'm sure there's a more professional term for that, but you know what I mean. Or maybe he did one, but not the others. Maybe just contributed. We don't know. George provides counter-arguments, though. I mean, he just met that hooded man. Or did he? We don't know. And at the very least, it's unlikely that he was able to kill Yellow Dick. That required more strength than Theon owns anymore. So goes the theory, anyway. Or is this just another case of nobles not seeing what was right beneath their noses and underestimating non-traditional strength? Both Roofs and Barbary seem keen to champion Theon not being the killer for whatever that's worth. Roos adds, even if he did have the strength, Ramsay's mind prison is probably too strong, so that's something else for us to consider as well. Dustin also highlights that Ramsay did this to Theon, but no one's overly bothered. Probably because it's of zero surprise by now. They're just used to the guy. But someone is doing the murdering, they're sure of that, and they know how big of a deal this is, how it could undo them. So they need to find a suspect, and quickly. They need to calm all these words going down around the castle, as well as obviously trying to stop the murders. Aenys says it's Wyman, because of course he does or at least people acting on Wyman's orders. So this time it's Barbary who argues with him, pointing out that if he thinks it is a manly, because he would be the one of motivation, then the phrase had best start looking at everyone. Here's the quote. And Lord Wyman is not the only man who lost kin at your red wedding, Frey. Do you imagine Horsbane loves you any better? If you did not hold the great John, he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them, as Lady Hornwood ate her fingers. Flints, Sirwins, Tallhearts, Slates, they all had men of the young wolf. 
House Wiswell too, said Roger Wiswell. Even Dustin's out of Barrington. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, feral smile. The North remembers, Frey. So we've got to hand it to Barbary there. It's a pretty fucking cool moment. She really gets herself in our good books, and she's not wrong. But it does go to show how poorly put together this alliance is. The Boltons would have never got this far without the intimidating Frey numbers behind them, but Roos has also aligned himself with the most hated possible faction in the North. Just because he's forced enemies to work side by side, it doesn't mean this thing is going to hold. Sooner or later, whether before or after this battle, they will turn on each other. Roos is just hoping they might wait until post-Stannis that would help him out. The whole thing is based on feeling as much as logic. Barbary is supposed to be smart. She knows the Alliance needs holding together or they are likely all doomed. Yet when it comes down to it, she can't resist showing her hatred of the phrase, the passion of her conviction, and how she's just another part of this huge rolling snowball. If she was smart, she would have kept it to herself a little while longer, but she's not so much. Then again, we could also just see it as the strength of the Norfolk conviction, how much that betrayal mattered, how the North just does not forget. The North always remembers. So we can't really blame her, but this isn't helping those cracks between the factions, is it? And it's not so subtle a message to Roots either, is it? If we remember the phrase, we remember your part as well. You forced most of us into this, but again, not forever, that's not going to work. We know some of what you did, and the rest certainly wouldn't be in your favour. So Roos definitely notes this and opts to end the argument before such feelings can be addressed, dismissing Theon and allowing us to glee over how far the Alliance has fallen in a mere chapter. So Theon returns to the walls, basking in his contemplation of the feeling of winter when George delivers another classic one-liner. Then he heard the horn. Surely, George, you spoil us. All this brilliance over rolling snowballs and rotted souls getting their rotted comeuppance, plus an assault on the castle? At least that is what we are led to think this horn means, as the sound penetrates all of Winterfell, and every citizen thinks the enemy has come. Their upper hand is long forgotten now as they stand in the cold, or chew their horse meat, or share the stinking haul of the horses, or maybe sharing it with who else is lying beneath the snow. Then the horn dies, and the drum begins, a death knoll that announces none other than Stannis. Now, we readers know, or think we know, that is 99% impossible unless something drastic has happened off-page. He's supposed to be stuck off in the crofters' village, so what's going on here? Well, the idea is so tempting for us, that a large number probably just run with it. They are saying the guy's name, after all, and as people come and join Theon, it seems they are all in agreement that the army is out there, even if they can't be seen. Stannis has arrived. This is it. Rereaders know the truth, and know this is just the start of some amazing, effective tactics to further weaken the Bolton resilience, so it's pretty cool they were already at that point. As for Theon, while everyone's worried about this and what's going to happen, he's thinking they all winds up in the same scenario for him anyway, so what changes there? Everyone else is back to arguing about what they should do about this, and yet again, it's a Frey who suggests riding out and meeting the enemy. They are really, really keen to do that. Maybe they're just planning to run away as soon as they're allowed, maybe. Do that, Theon thought. Ride out into the snow and die. Leave Winterfell to me and the ghosts. That's an important quote. He's taking some ownership of his former home and of the ghosts he made. So there's some responsibility at last. Another key part of Theon's growth arc. Theon also thinks this turn up might be good for Roose, as he pretty much lays out what we've been talking about all chapter. The castle is too crowded. You can't trust anyone. All those Roos bought with the promise of Ned's daughter are beginning to suspect and the trick won't last forever even if you can hide Ramsay's crimes. So why not take a leaf from your own southern campaign by sacrificing those who could be future enemies first? We've seen him do that plenty of times, haven't we? And it's not like he has a shortage. Fionn is still pretty smart and it's fun to see it summed up like that. 
And perhaps the phrase would be the good choice for that early sacrifice, as we're going to kind of see later. Although that will remove some of that intimidation they provide for Roos Bolton, for the Boltons in general, as we just discussed. While he dreams of being allowed to go and die with these sent forces, because that's the best he can hope for, Fionn returns to the godswood. While he's wandered before, he now goes with a purpose. What of this possibility of his end coming for him? And we've already had a bunch of film progression moments here and in recent chapters, you know the ones, so why not one more? because the heart tree is talking to him again, whispering his name. So we get very excited as we figure this to be Bran on the other side, getting through to the real world. You know, that's pretty important. But even that is surpassed by Fionn's own words. The old gods, he thought, they know me. They know my name. I was Fionn of House Greyjoy. I was a ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees. A sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Fionn, not as reap. Tears trickled down his cheeks, impossibly warm. So, let's break this down. He's admitting his true self, that he was brother to these children. So he's at least semi-Stark. That's really, really big. And not only that, but he sees the value of who he was. And he wants to be allowed back to that in his final hours. This is the Reek versus Fionn argument. He wants Reek left behind. He wants to be himself, again, because he's valuing that. And he actually figures to have pride in both sides of himself. Both the Stark and the Ironborn side. So this is, I mean, this doesn't really get much bigger, does it? You know what we've been through with all this Fionn arc. You know how important this moment is. I don't think I need to point it out to you. It's really coming to hit us in the face. We've got how important the brand connection is because we're figuring, oh, hey, this is big if he really can affect the world like he is here. It's important that this is Bran for the relationship between Fionn and Bran and what Fionn did to Bran and everything like that. And for him personally, just huge, huge revelation moments, just huge, again, important is the only word, important moment for his soul and what he's been through. Here's another quote for you. Bran, the tree murmured. They know, Fionn thought. The gods know. They saw what I did. So again, it's huge, it's exciting. It's that real connection being made for Bran I'm talking about. Because remember, Bloodraven said he couldn't. So does this mean that Bran is breaking the rules? Is he uber powerful? And could he perfect this? Could he have a full-on conversation with someone through a tree? Whether in the present or the past. I mean, that, that starts to boggle our minds a little bit, but it's pretty huge, isn't it? Although we must point out that while Fionn is having this really, really big breakthrough, he does also think that he did no wrong to Bran. So not all lessons have been learned, have they? Either way, he is interrupted by three spearwise, tying us back to the chapter beginning. And he only knows two of them, there's this new stranger here. They overheard his confession. They unfortunately heard the wrong parts of it. So the danger is really ramped up, even before Holly draws a blade. Which makes Fionn think that they are the murderers, which makes so much more sense. But we don't quite get confirmation yet, even if that's the one I buy into. I'm sure many of you do too. It definitely does fit in with how women are underestimated or barely even noticed in this setting. And let's not forget, these are spearwives. They are more than capable. So now we have this hateful ending of the Spearwise really saying what they think about Fionn and who he is and his crimes against the North. They feel that. And this is with them being wild things. They still hate him for what he's done and the turn cloaking and everything like that. So Fionn's actual reward for having this big breakthrough moment and accepting responsibility and facing up to his crimes is actually now physically in front of him they might still get punished for it the spearwise they promise the ultimate danger for fion they promise his death but first he's going to see abel slash mance so this is pretty exciting end for us isn't it some merging of two great storylines two big characters and we're going to finally find out what mance is up to or planning at least that's what we hope and that's all for getting the possible battle right on the doorstep so this is as built up as an ending as you can really get considering we have to wait five more chapters to get Fionn's last. That is Fionn 6, that is the ghost of Winterfell. And I've got to say, is it the best Fionn chapter of this book? Is it the favourite? It's hard to say no, isn't it? Just for the amount of Bolton collapse we see within, just for the amount of comeuppance we see within, how can we 
not like that. I think it's one of my favourites. I'd love to hear your opinions. And as I say, we have this little bit of a cliffhanger, this real build-up for what's going to happen in the last one. Whether it's Stannis outside, whether it's something else, whatever. Then we've got what Mance is up to. We assume this is going to be some kind of plan. We're going to see something here. As well as this built-up pressure of the entire alliance. Maybe we're going to even just see it pop completely in the next chapter. Rereaders know we won't get that part delivered, not completely. We will get some elements of it. But everything else, yeah, we are pretty much going to get. So that is very, very exciting. That's going to be a very, very important chapter. We look forward to that one. But for now, it's time to leave Winterfell behind and have our one jaunt over to Essos for today's episode. So let's get to it. Let's head over to Tyrion 10. So here we are again at the beginning of yet another phase of Dance Tyrion. And how many times have we actually said that over all these episodes? Seems like a lot. But this one might be the last. We have finally come to the final part of Tyrion Lannister's incredible journey. There will still be some adjustments to come in his remaining chapters, but really, the overall arc is there. Tyrion as a slave. That's what we've got for the rest of this book. And before we go any further, let me point out, we only have three Tyrion chapters remaining in this book. And that is including this one, which is pretty weird. Cast your mind way, way back to the prepper episode for Dance, which does the Germany seem years ago, so don't worry if you can't quite remember. We spoke about how John, Danny, and Tyrion all curiously take a little bit of a backseat for the final stretch. I'm not going to repeat the frequency numbers for you again, but the trend is clear. So that's obviously a large change to what we're used to, and I think that is going to stick out to us here at the end. We have 25 chapters remaining in this book, and only two of them are going to belong to Tyrion. That seems pretty unfathomable for us. Even though we missed him in Feast, Tyrion is one of the characters least affected by chapter gaps over the whole series. He's Mr. Consistent, so this will really be a step into new territory for us. So while the last three chapters of Tyrion's arc all encompass his life as a slave, this one today has the job of setting up that new world and what it means for each of the three characters in Tyrion, Penny and Jorah, all of whom come at this from very different backstories and very different angles and are therefore affected differently. For Tyrion, it is, obviously, the furthest possible step down from the life of privilege he's already left far behind. It's a step he'd never dreamt of, one that we likely never would have guessed at either, and it does an even more direct job of pointing out how good he had it than his recent previous circumstances have done. It's another new environment that Tyrion must adapt to, a completely new environment with utterly different rules to what he's used to. And yet this chapter will show you can make the argument he adapts to this change even better than the original drop from Tyrion Lannister to Hugh or Hill. This might be because it's the bottom rung and there's zero choice in the matter, you can't get any lower. It might be because there is a perverse structure and hierarchy in slavery and Tyrion knows how to work such once he gets his feet wet. It might be because of his recent experiences with Penny and them having put him in a much better frame of mind and approach to deal with such things than drinking his way across the narrow sea did. Or it might be elements of all of those. It's also something new for us to learn. We've got new players and new rules to learn for these three remaining chapters here today, we'll be tasked with getting used to those before the scenery shifts even closer to Marine, and Tyrion provides us with another POV for the upcoming gigantic battle we're all waiting for, so it's important stuff. We know that's an important vehicle for George to get into to show us the other side of this battle and give us a lot of information in Marine, especially once Danny leaves. That was a big part of his untying the mirror and he's not and getting these uh, chapters out. So that's an incredibly important choice and this is a real uh, line in the sand, you could say. Luckily, half of the stuff that we'll find in this chapter is actually a reminder as we rediscover characters that we first met via Quentin too. At the time, we said many of these people will be important for this point in the book and for early wins as well, so it's all worthy stuff again. And most importantly, we'll see Tyrion get back to something he already knows, climbing the ladder. It's a very different looking ladder, I'll, I'll grant you, but it's still a case of Tyrion seeing the angles, letting his tongue do the work, shifting just a few inches higher at every chance, and he's also bringing Penny and Jorah along for the ride. And again, it's just looking a little bit more similar to the Tyrion we've seen before in his resourcefulness and ingenuity for getting things done. 
This is, in many ways, the best Tyrion's looked in this book. If only it were so simple and there were no downturns whatsoever. Well, we'll see the truth of that now. Let's dive in. We're left with no uncertainty on what has happened to Tyrion since the last time we saw him, right from the opening line. He has been captured, and he has been turned into a slave, and now he and Penny are being sold. So even that, right from the beginning, is pretty much indescribable in terms of its importance and its weight on someone's soul. I can clearly not describe the ramifications, just the idea of being owned and sold like a piece of furniture, like a thing. This is beyond the scope of description and the effect it has on a human soul and just the feeling of self-worth or injustice or, well, there's a whole myriad of things. And again, I'm not going to come close to doing that justice, but you know how critical and weighty that is. But let's not bypass that these two now being named Lot 97, is obviously meant to remind us that Melisandre was once also a Lot, confirming, reminding us of the idea that she too was once a slave in some part of the world. There's not too much of a connection to be made between these two characters, Melisandre and Tyrion, other than that, but it's worth noting when Melisandre's history will surely become important at some point. And for what it's worth, Mel was a Lot 7, a full 90 places ahead of Tyrion and Penny. Perhaps the numbers are random. Perhaps they are placed in order of demand, we don't know. That either seems to diminish Tyrion and Penny, given that they are dwarves, or it makes you feel sick about wild child Melisandre would be considered so valuable. The second important piece of information is given in the second sentence. They are next to the Skahazadan's mouth, and therefore next to Marine. we know that, which can be pretty stunning. We could be forgiven for thinking that Tyrion's run-in with a slaver would complicate his path towards Daenerys, not speed it up, but here he is. Ironically, where he is supposed to be, just in circumstances that no one would ever choose. So this gets our mind going again. If Tyrion can get himself out of this, or if someone can rescue him, then we're right back on track for this grand meeting we've been promised since the beginning of the book. A meeting of two of our members of the Triforce. Could there be anything more influential, more rocking throughout the Song of Ice and Fire universe? It's been promised for the longest time now, and Tyrion is finally physically in the right place, even if he is still, unfortunately, barred by chains or by being at the other end of the societal structure, or by the huge siege lines being set up outside of the city. Still, the excitement is there for what could be. Little do we know, we're not going to be delivered such anytime soon. For now, Tyrion is not thinking of the far future, or what Daenerys Targaryen might be up to. He's concentrating on his own situation, as you would. Particularly on the word at the end of the first sentence, amusement. Tyrion and Penny are not being sold because of Tyrion's great deeds or the weight of his name. They're not being sold as people of great worth or even of the worth of a slave and what they can do for you in terms of duties. They're essentially being sold as toys. Little curiosities who might win you a smile or who you can press your friends with or you can just get them out whenever you're bored. They even come with accessories and a dog and a pig to make them seem funnier. We know being the subject of ridicule and laughter is Tyrion's worst nightmare as we explored plenty back in King's Landing. He's already had to face that challenge head-on back on the ship, but this is clearly something entirely different. He is now being treated utterly as an object, something to laugh and point at. Penny might already be used to this, even when she's free, but it's another level that Tyrion has tumbled down, and it's one that strikes at his heart. So Tyrion, being Tyrion, he's not going to waste any time looking for a way out. He's not really focusing on his situation here. He's not wasting away in self-pity or shutting down like we'll see Sajora has in a second. He's looking at his surroundings, his new players, and he's looking for an angle to exploit them. Hence, we got the Tyrion of Old Bank. For now, this is restricted to looking around at the bidders, the various levels of the Yunkai. He's already aware of what a Tokar is, because of course he is, and he identifies that behind the bidders are sellswords, and though he doesn't explicitly point out as much, you get the sense Tyrion is highlighting these people, kind of bookmarking them for potential later on, because some of the sellswords are Westerosi, and they are armed as well. And if they are Westerosi, then there's a chance. You can hear his cogs working. There's just that slim chance, so why not? Either he can prove himself a Lannister, and if all the gods were good, maybe you'd even come across a really loyal Westerman far from home. 
but even beyond that 1% chance, you can rely on the old weight of name and the promise of gold, just like we saw back in Game of Thrones. Or, at the very least, you can be identified as Cersei's prize. Now that's not a much better situation than this, but it is better. As he once thought when he believed Jor was taking him west, there is a whole lot of chance and possibility between here and the Red Keep, more than his current chains are offering. That has to wait for now though, as the bidding begins and the nobility of the Junkish start making their offers. Already here, we can start making connections to Quentin too, as we recognise Yezan Zoquagaz from his rather unique physical description, and rereaders know this is only the start of his involvement in the chapter. As the bids begin, Tyrion gives a little bit of context on what has happened before and what happened when they were taken. The slaves remaining on the Selesi Koran didn't put up any fight because it didn't matter to them. This is just run-of-the-mill stuff. It's to change from one owner to the next, which is pretty harrowing to think about. The others had levels of security given to them either by the Widow or the Red Priests, or the ship's mates, or the fiery fingers respectively, which are details we're very unlikely to have considered. Someone cares about them, someone wants them. There are barriers to making those people slaves. Those do not exist for Tyrion and Penny. So that mixes in with the disappointment of the fact that they are apparently worth the least out of everyone on that ship, at least via the opening bids. Though in fairness, that is already raising up to similar to what the slaves went for, and there are a high number of bids coming in, so that's something. The first word we get from Penny in this chapter is appreciation that she and Tyrion are being kept together, and that tugs at the heartstrings just because we feel so bad for her. To a certain degree, there are similar feelings between Penny and the ship's slaves, in that she's assumedly going to be doing the same thing that she's always been doing her whole life anyway, and in a way she is also only switching owners. Bills still feel like the whole world of difference between being free and being owned. More to the point, she is obviously frightened and is looking for any level of safety or comfort she can find, and Tyrion represents that for her. Here's something she knows, that she liked, that fills a role for her. This is a horrible situation, but it'd be worse if she were facing it alone. A friend can make all the difference, and we have to smile when Tyrion returns the sentiment by squeezing her shoulder. At least Penny has that, and if it makes her feel better, then great. And Tyrion apparently hasn't rebitted himself so much as to not offer such comfort, so that's good. We also learn here that Jor Mormont tried to fight the slavers. That's pretty interesting. Firstly, it's something we would have liked to see. And right here and now in the chapter, we don't even know if Jor survived the conflict, even if we assume he isn't going to die of page. As for Tyrion, we have this quote. In his case, it was his mouth that earned him lashes. Oh, you don't say, that's not like Tyrion, is it? Mm. The bids have skyrocketed now, nearly doubling so that Tyrion, Penny, and the two animals together are now worth as much as one single sailor. So you can really feel those old grievances that Tyrion used to have about tall men coming back from the days of old. When the bids begin to plateau, the auctioneer tries his best to push it a little bit further by having these toys prove what cool features they have. So once again, Tyrion is forced to joust the top pretty pig in a situation far worse than drunk sailors can provide, one that burns at him far, far worse. Interestingly, his bitterness doesn't come at being asked to do this, or even the gales of laughter that come from the crowd when Tyrion falls from Pretty Pig, or, indeed, the fact that this humiliation apparently makes them worth all that much more. It comes when he sees Penny wearing a frozen smile, as prepared for this as she has been for any other joust. That is what annoys Tyrion, how readily she accepts it and is keen to play this role. He curses her father for teaching her that this is the way of life and this is what she is worth, which is nice that he cares for Penny so, but does also ignore that these skills might save her a lot of pain in these current circumstances. The bids continue to rise after the joust, with Tyrion not liking the way that Yezan is looking at them, which is a pretty good instinct. Once we get to 1600, the auctioneer feels he needs some more tricks of the trade and invites a closer inspection of Tyrion and Penny, just to further dehumanise them and make them feel like utter livestock, especially when the suggestion that they can be bred together is made and that any offspring could be sold for extra profit. That's even more harrowing than before and makes them feel like an item more than ever. It is while this pale crone is sizing up Tyrion and criticising how he has been made that Tyrion breaks his silence, unable to put up with the indignation any longer. 
In typical Tyrion fashion, his fighting back comes in the form of a dick joke, though you can hardly blame him this time round. Tyrion is used to such choices getting him in trouble, but the trouble is rarely so immediate as the lashing he receives now, even if he thinks it was worth it. Besides, his talking back has an extra effect of inciting new bids after the showing of life. As Tyrion highlighted at the beginning, the most valuable comes from one of the cell swords. And it's easy to miss on the first time round, but rereaders can tell this is hated Brown Ben Plum, making his first appearance after betraying Danny and delivering her so much heartache, his white hair and purple cloak being our clues. But Ben Plum has an opponent in his bidding in Malaza, also known as the Girl General, that we talked about a lot in Quentin 2 in terms of her showing up later in wins. But as he keeps bidding, we see Tyrion have the thoughts that we mentioned earlier. Cell swords he has dealt with, he has danced on their plane before. They are much more manoeuvrable than slavers. Then there's the Cersei angle, and he out and out repeats the thought that we had earlier on. Cersei and the Seven Kingdoms were half a world away. Much and more could happen before he got there. I turned Bronn. Give me half a chance. Might be I could turn this one too. It would never be his first choice, but it's a hell of a lot higher on the list than being a slave. We know from being with Tyrion for so long that most of the time all he needs is an opening, a chance, and that is what he seeks here. Though Ben Plum beats out the Crone and Malaza, Yazan simply has too much money to contend with as the price winds up at 5000 and Ben Plum abandons the potential of Tyrion, even if re-readers know this is only the beginning of their interactions and it's some great setup for what is to come later. But Tyrion has no mind for later. His very correct instincts tell him it would be bad to end up as property of Yezan Zoquagaz if he's going to end up property of anyone. So he does what he does best, which is shout out and surprise everyone by going against the grain, which he does perfectly by bidding on himself. Tyrion figures the only way to save him and Penny is by dropping back on Old Reliable, being cheeky enough to get a reaction. In many ways, it's similar to Penny's performing, he's just never realised it. He does so here, putting his quick wit and loud tongue to use, hoping someone will notice him for his extroversion and that will get them into a better situation, or as much as you could hope for one right here in a slave auction. It is classic Tyrion, you can't deny. It invokes memories of him challenging Lysa Arryn back in the Eyrie, with more than a few instances in between. And just like back in that instance from Game of Thrones, his act works on the crowd as they begin to laugh and therefore give him extra worth. Back then, it was the worth of honour, this time it is pure naked gold. It's actually a pretty funny scene as Tyrion turns the auction on its head by listing his self-opinion qualities, just as we see this outburst is twofold in terms of purpose. Yes, it keeps the crowd interested, it highlights him, maybe it raises the bid, and it hopefully gets him away from the yellow whale, but he's also trying to catch a specific eye. I bid 10,000 silvers for myself. I'm good for it, I am, I am. My father told me I must always pay my debts. So that's clever, that's very, very clever. To people in this part of the world, that last sentence means nothing. But to someone from Westeros, it's as clear as the bat signal, as we see when Brown Ben Plum immediately turns back. This was Tyrion's goal, even though he has second thoughts when he analyses Ben's face. A warm smile, but cold eyes, that's what he sees. If only Daenerys had seen that second part as well. We know how effective Ben's warm smile can be, and how cruel his eyes really are. It was a good plan, one that was beginning to work. But then, with this uncertainty around Ben, Tyrion decides to ditch subtlety and just mention Castle Rock by name, as he has so many times before. In the end, even in a way he never could have thought, he still comes back to his name and his gold, even if he earns the whip for it now. He copies us for a moment in comparing where he's come from since the beginning of this book before he's whipped again. The plan fails, and Tyrion and Penny are sold to their first owner. So any hope we had for avoiding the actual horrors of slavery are unfortunately dashed, if even finding a decent owner. The possibility of Ben and finding a chance is gone, and it's worth noting that that idea might have worked for Tyrion, but then what about Penny? The pair are still kept around for the rest of the auction, including some appreciating that somehow their situation could be even worse when the young girl up next is led onto the stage naked just to make us feel truly awful. At the same time, Tyrion is already sizing up his next opportunity, his next chance. This time it is the City of Marine, so close and yet so far. If he can get there, 
where Danny has blessedly outlawed this terrible slavery that's suddenly affecting him, anything is possible. This time, he does consider Penny, and the fat marine is going to be that much harder to reach unless he abandons her. At least this gives him pause here. Earlier in the book, he would have never even hesitated. Penny is given further focus, as she again seeks reassurance now that they know what the new reality actually is. And Tyrion delivers that reassurance again, as he did before. Probably because he knows how close to the edge Penny is, and how he needs her to keep it together if there's any chance of escape. So he tells her these lies that they are safe, even while he bleeds beneath his tunic, and that they'll always be wanted by this yellow whale, even though he knows that won't be the case. They are a novelty, and novelties wear thin. And what happens after does not bear thinking about, especially when we're talking about Penny. While the auction continues behind them, Tyrion and Penny now meet Nurse, Yezan's overseer and their essential supervisor. We can see the difference in their greetings. Penny whispers her name in a small, timid voice. Tyrion is defiant when he says YOLO, privately reminding himself of who he is truly and his true worth in his own inner monologue. He continues his bitter, private thoughts in true Tyrion form, even while Nurse spouts all these niceties we know to be rubbish before Lot 99 is declared, and we discover Jorah Mormont did indeed survive the conflict with the slavers, but he also, inarguably, lost. The man was beaten within an inch of his life, Tyrion says. His face is disfigured, he's basically naked, he's chained, and most important of all, he's been branded with the demon's mask. So this is a pretty important moment. Jorah Mormont is a big character, unlucky enough for us. He's been involved since the very beginning. He's been by the side of one of the story's biggest characters, and throughout that time, we've seen him as the proud, capable warrior holding his head high, even if we actually know him to be a complete dick. We've seen him taken down a peg already in this book, thanks to Danny finally cutting him loose, but this is obviously a whole new level, even sharper in many ways than Tyrion's own decline. This one is so sudden and violent, and we see now why George pointed out all those brandings in Volantis so often, because one was coming to a major character. And again, we can't even begin to talk about the effect of being branded on a person's soul, their worth and ego and how they feel about everything. I'm not even going to attempt it, but I think we know it's nothing good, is it? It is pretty, pretty bad. Even Tyrion, who is pretty far from a Jorah fan, can't take any pleasure in seeing this. It's an awful sight, it's harrowing once again, and it's obviously permanent. Given how Jorah ended up this way, and the still ferocious look he gives even in his current condition, the auctioneer tries to paint Jorah as a definite fighting pit favourite, even if he does style him at the same price as Tyrion and Penny. Yet no one bids. Jorah might have the muscles and the hair, but it's clear to everyone in the room the guy has no spirit. He's a walking shell, a man who has had life taken from him. And that's an acceptable response for finding yourself a branded slave, but Tyrion explains that's not actually the reason. His eyes was fixed beyond the siege lines, on the distant city with his ancient walls of many-coloured brick. Tyrion could read that look as easy as a book. So near, and yet so distant. So that's a repeat of what we've said about Tyrion already, and a fair repeat for Quentin as well. As always with Marine, the issue is timing. He came too late with his prized lion. Daenerys is wed, and his ultimate goal is defeated. That is ignoring that timing is only one aspect. Jory didn't just arrive late, he arrived in chains, obviously. He never got here successfully. And who is to say he would be successful even if he strolled in two weeks ago? Jor would, of course. He's convinced himself that this is a sure thing because it's Jor one brain cell Mormon. He cannot conceive of anything going against him and if it does, he'll punch it. It also reminds us just how creepy this guy is. We've never forgotten, but it hasn't been shoved in our face this strongly for quite a while. As mentioned in previous chapters, his infatuation with Daenerys is more an obsession than anything else. He has projected love onto her, nothing more. There is no relationship. If he really loved her in the way he claims, he'd be happy just to be back beside her, wouldn't he? At least that would be something, even if it's not what he really wants. And he's done that before, hasn't he? For years he was by her side, but not in a relationship. Even while she's been married. So what we're seeing isn't a tragic love story cut short. It's Jorah not getting what he wants and showing off his rubbish side yet again. So we can have sympathy for the brand, but this loss of spirit is all on him and a reflection of what a dick he is. 
Also, let's just note, if Jorah is this upset about Danny marrying his star, can you imagine what his reaction would be if he was told a tenth of what she's been getting up to with Dario? He's not going to like that. Even this news is muddled anyway. Some slaves insist Danny would never make peace with slavers. She is the breaker of chains after all, it would be very off-brand, wouldn't it? Surely soon enough she's going to ride out and prove the truth of that claim by choosing war. And we mentioned a long time ago that there would be an element of disillusionment among slaves thanks to the tough choices that Danny has had to make. We saw flickers of it with the Astapori too. Unfortunately, that's just going to happen whatever path Danny chooses, even if we know it to be unfair. But it's interesting to think how this might manifest later on in Danny's extended absence, when her forces do ride out to smash the Unhai in winds, and when she eventually leaves Westeros as well. You can't keep everyone happy, is the lesson. While Nurse is still lecturing them on the advantages of being owned by this particular slaver, and the dangers in not doing what you were told, the auction for Jorah continues, and it's not going well. Someone finally makes a bid of just 50 silvers, one only contended by the old crone, the one who says, and won, so much, she's either a relative of Bloodraven or of Carlos Boozer. When Tyrion learns that Jorah being brought by this woman will soon mean his death, he finds his tongue risking his life again when he tells Nurse that Jorah is actually part of their act. It's some incredibly quick thinking, even for Tyrion, as he concocts the tale of the bear and the maiden bear, and it's so well constructed that it works. Jorah is also bought by Yezan, though neither Tyrion nor Penny can work out why Tyrion did such a thing. They are far from friends, remember, Tyrion is only in this situation at all because Jorah kidnapped him, and they had a brush up in their last chapter as well, yet Tyrion did it. Whether because he believes such a fate was too horrible for anyone if he can help it, whether he just wants some semblance of the world that he recognises in the same way that Penny does, or whether he either believes he can turn Mormon in some future situation, or just generally believes he can get him on side or help in an escape or whatever. Maybe he does just want to improve the act. Whichever it is, Tyrion did the deed and the trio remained together. Not that that is very reassuring. Jorah doesn't show any signs of life at Tyrion's act, and Tyrion simply labels him as broken at the news of Daenerys. Again, because he's emotionally useless. At the same time, Penny has retreated to the fur of Crunch, her truest and perhaps her last friend. Maybe the reality of it all is hitting her now, they're leaving the auction. Maybe she's known all along. She fends off total despair, but is clearly in a bad way, which makes sense. And Tyrion is left without much help if we are hoping for some scheme of escape. So he does what he can as they are trundled off in this mule cart. He pays attention to every single detail, because who knows what will come in handy. Rewarders know he'll end up making use of a lot of this, stuff he wouldn't have got if he'd collapsed in on himself like the other two, or like he would have done earlier in the book, so it's a damn good job he's still at this level of awareness. And at the same time, there's the lucky coincidence he can now serve as a camera to the Yonkish camp outside Marine, so we get views from both sides just like we are in the north. It's a mini city that's been formed in these camps, but one that only has order in random spots. The majority is a sprawling chaos, which is exactly what we'd expect to find, given what we know of the Yunkish masters already, and again, that will come into play in Winds as well. There's a few highlights to take note of. The biggest is the six 40-foot trebuchets arrayed around the city, primed and ready to take aim with heavy stone or burning pitch. It's designed to be a pretty intimidating sight to Marine, at least that is what the soldiers believe. They think this is as responsible for the peace as any of the negotiations, and they're only partly wrong. Let's quickly go through their names here. Dragonbreaker, Harridan, Harpy's Daughter, Wicked Sister, Ghost of Astapor, and Mazdan's Fist. Well, some of them are good, some of them are bad. Ghost of Astapor? That seems like a pretty rubbish one. You don't really want to be reminded of that, do you? Wicked Sister? Well, I like that one just as a fan of the Gentleman Bastard sequence. But I think Dragonbreaker has to be the best names. These monsters will be important later on, very slightly other than what we see in Marine at the end of this book, and then much, much more in the Winds preview chapters that we have from Tyrion and Barristan, so they are not to be discounted. Tyrion also gets a stark reminder of what he is now. He sees one slave being ripped raw for some unknown reason, then he sees the famous chain soldiers that we were so worried about before in Quentin 2. But most damning is when Nurse, 
intentionally, takes them past a show of what happens when a slave tries to escape. And the answer is nothing good. We've already heard about the famed Telosi slingers that Yunkai are using instead of archers, and they happen to be showing off their skills by using escaped slaves as a human target practice. As expected, especially of the use of lead balls as ammos, the devastation is terrible. It's too awful for description here. Tyrion is convinced of why Telusi slingers might be a good idea, and surely every slave is convinced that trying to escape is a super bad idea. Nurse definitely knows what he is doing here as he forces Penny and Jorah to watch. We get this very slight moment where it's hinted that Jorah might have some life left in him yet, but that passes by without comment. And it's a real shame escape now seems such a non-option, because just before, Tyrion had seen the first instances of the bloody flux having reached the Yunkish camps. Tyrion, who knows nothing of this particular disease, already knows this is incredibly bad news. Here's a quote. That made his fingers twitch. Disease could wipe out an army quicker than any battle, he had heard his father say once. Well, his fingers are twitching because he's still got his own disease to worry about, let's not forget. But we also remember that we already know how bad the Pale Mare is going to be. We saw it with the Astapori. So if it's now reached this badly organised camp, a sprawling mass where everyone is shoved in next to each other, oh yeah, we can expect this to have a really bad payoff soon enough, and it's not one we want these three to be involved in. When they reach the tents of Yezan, they find a mini town of its own, quite nice one as the Gunkus camp goes, and Tyrion and Penny will get to stay in the main tent because they are treasures, which is as creepy as it sounds. Jorah would be considered ugly even if he was not swollen up and bruised, so he will sleep outside like a chained animal, such as he's been reduced to. Before that, there is another mark of slavery to be added, one that could be seen as even worse than chains, collars. Now as collars go, they are a pretty nice one thanks to Yezan's extravagance, and Tyrion counts himself lucky that they have not been branded. At least you can one day remove a collar, hypothetically. We've got to say at this point, it's impressive that Tyrion is remaining in such high spirits. That's a very real form of strength, and we should give him credit for it. For poor Penny, the collar is too heavy, probably literally and figuratively, and again, Tyrion tries to comfort her, telling her that it is gold instead of iron, and to think of it as a lady's necklace. They're blatant lies, of course, lies that Penny can probably recognise, but that's not important right now. Anything that can make her feel better is worthwhile. So we should give Tyrion credit for that as well, because it's been a consistent effort of his to really look after Penny as much as he can in this chapter. And he even thinks of Shay, ever the rarity, but with more frequency lately, and he addresses his strangling slash murder of her much more directly than he has done in the past. While Jorah is left outside, Tyrion and Penny are introduced to their new home and their new bunkmates in the rest of Yezan's treasures. It only takes a few introductions for Tyrion to realise the truth. A grotesquerie, Tyrion realised. Somewhere, some god is laughing. Yes, all of Tywin's worst nightmares slash his own threats to Tyrion have finally come true. Out of the treasures, it is only sweets that Tyrion and Penny can really communicate with. So they listen as Yezan's apparent favourite gives them advice on Nurse's horrible nature, as well as the backstory of Yezan and the rotting illness he gained on Sephoris years and years ago. Sweets also gives the advice that they are there as a distraction, an amusement for his pain. Okay, that makes sense, but when that is combined with deny him nothing, we get this awful sense of foreboding about what this particular slavery might entail. But before that comes the more official duty of what they were advertised as, false jousters. So after a clean-up, it is time for a feast, one where all Yezan's treasures will perform for guests of high esteem, including the current Yonkish Supreme Commander. And Tyrion and Penny are going to be included in that as well. While waiting for their slot, Tyrion returns to watching and learning all that he can. First he sees that Yurkaz, the supreme commander, is not long for this world, and we know the chaos that will bring, but then he also spies two sellsword commanders. One we recognise to be the Tattered Prince, even if Tyrion does not know such yet. The other is Brown Ben Plum, who Tyrion definitely does recognise. When Sweets tells him of Ben's full name, Tyrion can't help but have a mental smirk. A Westerosi and a Plum. Better and better. So those ideas from earlier are still alive, there is still an avenue to get out of this, cold eyes be damned. 
Then comes Tyrion and Penny's turn, and though it's far from perfect, it does the job. At the least, it amuses Yazan to no end, which is their ultimate goal and what will keep them safe. Tyrion has learnt enough to get by even if he's no master, and Penny appears to be on top form with a melon helmet trick, even if that does lead to the suggestion that it might have angered some. So it goes well, but that doesn't rob Tyrion of the sting of laughter of being treated as this amusing toy instead of the man he is. Contempt for Tyrion. The universal tongue. So that's just a nice little link there between King's Landing and some slave camps. Hmm. After that, Tyrion and Penny are set to be servers. That, in and of itself, must be so strange to Tyrion. How often has he had his wine poured for him throughout his life? And how often did he ever give the pourers a second's thought? And now he's here in their shoes. It's tough work, but it's a day in the park compared to the drunken suggestion that he and Penny be made to publicly sleep together for yet further amusements, a notion that's both sickening and terrifying for us. There are a few things we'd want to happen less, especially given Tyrion's past with similar evils. Luckily, no one pays attention to that weirdo, and Tyrion reminds himself to play the part instead of letting his tongue get him in trouble again. Such a choice leads to someone suggesting trying out Tyrion's boasts about Savas, which is a much better idea for everybody. So it is that Tyrion plays against her youngish lord and beats him soundly, which Penny says is a bad idea. That's in keeping with her worldview, but she might also be right. Luckily it comes to nothing, as Ben Plum turns up next wanting a game. He clearly remembers Tyrion's subtle hint at identity earlier on, which is great, this is what Tyrion wants. But still, he plays the game by asking for permission from Yezhen. He knows the rules already. It comes very close to the exact situation that Tyrion wants. Ben winning Tyrion in the game, which Tyrion would have obviously thrown. Again, that doesn't help Penny, but you do what you can. Just take the first step first. Unfortunately, that's denied though. So Tyrion's left with no other option than to just play it out. They win one game each before Tyrion starts studying his opponent in the third. And he hits the nail on the head when doing his analysis of Ben when he thinks of him as someone that would be good at making friends, someone who people trust. We know the truth of that, we've seen it. But Tyrion also sees the hunger and ambition, the elements that Danny missed. This is some of the worth that Tyrion could obviously bring to her, seeing these extra levels. He also analyses the style of play, and he says that Ben plays so that he doesn't lose, which is pretty in keeping with real life. He wants to just join the winning side. Remember, Tyrion made similar connections with bold Aegon before he was able to puzzle out a lot of his personality as well. They play five games in total, with Tyrion winning the final three. No, he didn't get to be won by Ben, but he at least got himself in good standing with Yezan, supposedly. That's got to count for something, doesn't it? And you would think he looks worth more than he did earlier on. But such winning leads to a big announcement. They will do their joust again, but next time in Marine, in front of Daenerys. And oh, how we shall laugh, Nurse says, to close the chapter. So this is difficult, because this is both what Tyrion wants and what he doesn't want. The last line is the opposite of what he wants. He definitely doesn't want this act to be stretched out to thousands upon thousands of people. And as we mentioned last time, he definitely, definitely doesn't want this to be his introduction to Daenerys Targaryen, even if he, that's not mentioned here, he doesn't know that she's going to see. But it is a way into Marine, though, and that's what he wanted. It just doesn't seem like that safe of an idea. If he was going to choose, the circumstances of going into Marine and therefore potential freedom would be very, very different. So it's kind of worked, it's kind of backfired. But I think the point of this chapter is really showing off Tyrion's skill. It really is admirable how he keeps it together, how he keeps coming up with these plans, he makes steps towards them, and yet he also plays the game. And most importantly of all to me, he keeps looking after Penny. He even bothers to look after Jorah, which to be fair would be kind of, we'd be fine with if he didn't bother, I think. But he looks after Penny, both directly, both in trying to improve their situation. And though that situation is absolutely horrible and reprehensible Tyrion is doing his best to get out of it and it is good to see that former Tyrion shining through it's been a long long time whether he's going to be able to keep that up in those next two chapters what we're going to see in terms of the war we know now we're going into marine so we've got a lot to be excited about in terms of potential reveals to Daenerys maybe this is the moment we've been waiting for etc 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 it's definitely a pretty important damn chapter 
It's kind of difficult to see a bad situation, but a good act, if you get what I mean. Either way, there's a lot of build-up for the ending of this big arc, so we're really looking forward to it. We're getting a lot of that sense today, aren't we? Just the building towards the end. Well, you just wait for next week if you really want kind of sense of the end. Either way, that's it for Marine and for Essos today. Now we're zipping back over, back to Westeros, and yet we're not going to the north. No, today we're having a big change as, just for once, just for the one time only, we're going to the Riverlands as we visit, I'm very excited you can tell, Jamie 1. He's here everybody. He is here for his one lone appearance and well I think you remember Feast and how much I enjoyed that arc and Jamie's Storm arc as well so it's just wonderful to get this guy back even if it is just for the one lone chapter. Now I'd like to spend some time going on about how important that is and how kind of special it is that he's popping up here late so late in the structure of this book but to be honest I'd be repeating a lot of what we said last week with Aya. Now okay Aya gets two chapters so this is slightly different but it's very much the same thing. A feast storyline, a key feast storyline being brought up very very late in the book although another difference would obviously be that Jamie was a much bigger part of that book than Aya was. Aya larger overall of course she's had way more focus but if we're talking feast only and Riverland storyline versus Bravos storyline Jamie's the clear winner so far. So it is a little different. If we've got our Triforce here in Dance with John, Danny, Tyrion, then Feast had their own with Cersei, Jamie, Brienne. Now in fairness, Dance's Triforce are more of a Triforce overall for the entire series than Feast, but still, they were very, very important to that book, and we really did enjoy all of those storylines. Soon enough, we're going to have Cersei doing the same thing, making a reappearance, although she gets two chapters. No Brienne, unfortunately, but we do have our lone Jamie. This is our one romp back into the Riverlands which as said about a billion times before is not only central geographically but has been really really important very very central to the overall plot of the series absent in this book sure but everywhere else incredibly incredibly important some of our biggest moments a lot of our characters almost all of our characters have big moments there so it's really great to get this very brief glimpse very quick glimpse back into what's going on there the tying up of the war where Jamie is as a person his leadership arc and growth and whatever else we want to call it there's the memory of Rob and there's the continuation of loyalty versus doing what's right for you and your family. We've got Brackens versus Blackwoods. We've got some history in this chapter. And then we have an incredibly exciting ending. So this time out, I'll spare you going through the numbers too much like we did with Aya. Obviously, it's been a very, very long time since we last saw Jamie with his ending back at Riverrun at the close of Feast for Crows. In terms of sequencing, not that much to talk about because we're not going to see him again. Unfortunately, this is our goodbye for Jamie already. And as for the overall structure of the book, well, you already know because you said it the last few weeks, the Feast storylines are opening back up. That's going to keep in timing with the gaps that we spoke about earlier for our dance trio. They're taking a slight back seat. We reintroduced these feast things. Marine is also going to take a big step up at the end there. We'll get a lot of that focus to close the book. And at some point, I guess we'll have to speak about how unusual the formatting, the structure is for the end of dance. It's very, very unusual compared to the other books and I think books in general. And that's because obviously it's such a very tight lead in to the beginning of wins, as far as we can guess. But that'll come for a later date. Let's, for now, just give our focus to Jamie, to the Kingslayer, the guy we've been waiting to see for a long, long time. It's very, very exciting. And, like I said, oh, how long it's been since we were in our beloved Riverlands. And you know how much I love and miss that area and the tension it had early on compared to now. So it's good that we get to see it for at least a little bit. And it's superb to not only see it again, but it turns out we're getting extra bonus to begin with because we're going somewhere completely new in the Riverlands. Of all these places we've already been, and we could have been again, no, George really is nice to us. He gives us somewhere new and it's somewhere we want to go. Raven Tree Hall, home of House Blackwood. So this is super. This is great. 
The Blackwoods have been a really big part of our Riverland story back when the war was on, and they've had some memorable characters in Lucas, or even more importantly, Titus. And yes, to be fair, they've taken a backseat more recently. They kind of faded out after the peak of the war, but still. And we can also get historical, as this chapter will itself, with this house, because there's even more memorable characters from Agnes Blackwood to Benjicott to Black Alley to Melissa. And don't forget the bunch that we meet in the Hedge Knight as well. There's loads of Blackwoods throughout history, dotted here, there and everywhere. So that's pretty cool. And it's doubly exciting for me, as one of the first episodes I ever wrote for History of Westeros back in the day was on House Blackwood. So back then, I took a real deep dive into their history and this cast of memorable names. So now getting to arrive at their home on page, especially when we've been getting denied them getting an over amount of focus in the actual series itself on the text, is very, very fun indeed. Because what we must remember is that while the Blackwoods aren't an obvious big player in Westeros, like I say, they kind of tail off in the second half of the series, and we have only really met two big characters in Lucas and Titus, is that historically this family is massively important. Whether that be in the outcome of the Dance of the Dragons with Benjicott and Black Alley, the invasion of the Ironborn with Agnes, or we can stretch way, way back into that ancient history in the North and all the possibilities that come with it. If I had the time, I'd list some of those for you here, but we don't really. But History of Westeros have an episode on it if you want to go back and listen to that, which I recommend. I definitely do think they're of importance historically up there in the North, in the Wolfswood that was maybe called something else once in the day. I think there's some kind of magical connection there with the warging and maybe the Stark stealing the warging from a different family and everything else. I think the Blackwoods are of importance to the real elements up on the North, the real, again, the magical. So, well, I hope we get answers about that someday. I hope we get that expanded upon. Unfortunately, this isn't the time or place to really go into that. We have a chapter to get on with, but it really does hold a space in my mind. And that's all without considering that they are responsible for half of the blood that makes up Brynden Rivers, Blood Raven himself, one of the most influential characters in a historical setting, and very easily the present saga as well. Not many people can say that. He might be the ultimate bad guy. He might be orchestrating the saving of the whole world. We don't know, but we know he's important. We've covered that in this reread. We know he's up there right now with Bran. He's obviously very special himself. He's mentoring someone else very, very special. He's doing incredible things with some weird ass powers, and his roots. Nice bump for you there. Extend right down here to this very place that Jamie is now stood in. So this is important right from the off. And George opting to open this chapter with the words Raven Tree Hall was old seems to be in homage and in hinting to that ancient importance and maybe the ancient power and the idea that this family have a larger role to play in the future as well as their part in the past maybe being revealed to be bigger than we currently know. That could be Blood Raven, past or future. That could be what happened up in the Wolfswood and how the North we know it, how House Stark as we know it was formed. Again, here's cross fingers that we actually get to find out. Jamie obviously isn't going to delve too deep into those particular mysteries in this chapter. He's going to stick to some more recent history and how it affects him and his goals currently, but it will stick in our minds. Plus, hey, you know me, love to meet a new old castle, especially one with this much prestige and some cool stories to tell and a really key identifying characteristic. So we're very lucky to be here at Raven Tree. It's one of my favourites personally. The first paragraphs hit on those themes immediately. First there is the castle itself, with the entwined moss and the ivy declaring its age on nature's side, while the man-made aspect is all about the square towers, which are clear signs of their first men heritage and another indicator of age. We're really going to be sticking with that age, that ancient theme here at the beginning. And at the same time, we're told about how the vale in which we stand was once part of a gigantic wood, but the trees were removed to make way for agriculture. Perhaps that was the only reason, or perhaps living in an actual wood reminded the Blackwoods of whatever fate chased them out of the now-named Wolfswood back in the north. Within, however, within the castle walls, it gets even more interesting. As Jamie tells us, maybe one big wood was too much, but abandoning usual trees obviously leaves one key exception, for weirwoods. 
In that episode that I helped write so long ago, we talked about how the Blackwoods are essentially the reverse Mandalays, a house from a different part of Westeros moving to a different kingdom, but taking a lot of their elements with them, as the Mandalays did going from south to north. They keep the southern gods, the Blackwoods have kept hold of their northern gods. They brought their religion down from the north with them, as we focused on back in the day when Titus and Rob prayed together in Riverrun after the Battle of the Camps. I think it was Battle of the Camps. The Weirwood tree in this case happens to be one of the most impressive in the series. Jamie labels it here as colossal, and you can see it from leagues away apparently. So we are very, very lucky to witness this. It sounds awesome. It sounds cool. I really like picturing it. There's some amazing artwork for this particular weirwood tree out there on the internet. I'm sure you've seen it. And we're just wondering what it's all about. It's mysterious. It intrigues us. I personally have got to hope that Bran enters this one at some point, even though apparently it's dead. Maybe it can be brought back to life. Who knows? Maybe he's going to do that to investigate his mentor or whatever it might be. Either way, there would be some damn brilliant old stories to be told from here, I would imagine. And maybe its size makes it more powerful or something else, or this is the site of something important historically in terms of nature. I don't know, but I'd like to know. So again, crossed fingers. But for Jamie, right now, understandably, it's just an interesting feature. As much as we might want to talk about ancient history, this is a man on a mission. He's still trying to tie up the loose ends of a war, even if that particular storyline has been gone for a while while reading through Dan. So like I said, we have some of that ire element of just being thrown back into plot lines that we've forgotten about or just haven't seen for a bit. It's been a long, long time. Dance is a long, long book. Jamie is still interested in a history. It's just one that is shallow deep as he travels through this Blackwood Vale and sees the evidence of the War of the Five Kings. Yes, we haven't had to deal with that quite so upfront for a while, have we? Or to be more specific, and we should really clap Jamie on the back for pointing this out, what he's really seeing is the evidence of Tywin Lannister's war crimes. Yeah, we're back to that subject. We've spoke about it so many times before. Let's recall an age ago where he set the Riverlands on fire. Well, this is one of those areas, as we see in these blackened and burnt shells of places. And just as important is the consequences that they'll be dealing with now, such as the fact that there are zero crops or food growing in this area that was probably pretty productive beforehand. Jamie's got to be disheartened by such. Recall that final feast chapter, when snow started falling, and he wondered how he was going to feed the country that his father had starved. It was great to see him take on that role and responsibility, but we know it's not going to be easy, as evidenced here, and it obviously just pours a little bit more salt in the wound that it was your own family that did so. Moving past that, we approach Raventree Hall itself now, and are reminded of the other great historical aspect of the Blackwoods, their feud with the Brackens. We haven't mentioned that yet. We've come across this multiple times in the series, I don't need to tell you about it, and again, it is covered in every other part of George's Westeros writing as well. But now we see it's actually come to a head again, as the Brackens besiege the Blackwoods in what seems to be the final act of the war. We definitely have that winding down feeling here when Jamie compares it to the much larger campaign at Riverrun that he's just dealt with. That was more populated with a much bigger spotlight. This is more of a necessary afterthought, an old quarrel being propped up in the form of official war. Both of these families would want to do this anyway, it's just, well, there's war on so that excuse uses us slightly. Jamie even calls it a dance, so I suppose he's been informed that he did have one chapter shifted over to this book. George was nice enough to tell him. Again, this is a much calmer situation than River Run. That was way, way more tense. There's less people here, there's only 500, there's less risk in general, and the end is pretty much just sealed in. Only the surrounding area is going to be really infected, there's less intent to destroy, we've got no siege towers or rams. This is all just settled down into the norm. As Jamie says, boredom and routine had taken over enemies of discipline. That's a cool line from Jamie, as well as it actually being absolutely true. That's exactly how the Blackfish escaped, which does bring another level of excitement into the chapter. Is it possible, Brynden, that Blackfish Tully is here? We know how much we want to see him again, 
And this is the last sponsor of Rob. He's the last spark of continuing the loyalty to that regime, to that reign of Rob Stark, to the idea of the North and the Riverlands as one separate kingdom. Again, I don't need to remind you of my love for the Blackfish as a character and how much we spoke about him throughout all the books, but especially in Feast, obviously. So this is a big question on everybody's mind. And not only do we love him, but this is important. He could influence a hell of a lot here in the future of the Riverlands, of which there is so many different tendrils to think of. Now, if he is here, there's obviously a legitimate question of how he got in, but he got out of one siege, so why couldn't he enter another, especially one that Jamie has just labelled as lax? Besides all that, Jamie has grown wise enough to recognise the importance of settling this. Once, he probably would have been too arrogant. He would have considered it beneath him. He's far too important for this kind of thing. But now he knows that Raven Tree Hall could still spark the fires of Rob Stark's reign, given the right circumstances. It's unlikely, given all that's happened and what he did at Riverrun and with Edmure, etc. and everyone else, but it's not impossible. And that would be the absolute last thing the Lannisters, or the Rail in general, need. Besides, once that hope is completely snuffed out, it doesn't just mean better safety, it also means that no one can say he's left his mission unfulfilled. His quest, one that he didn't want in the first place, remember, to the Riverlands will be complete, which will then allow him to return to King's Landing. Yet, we discover the argument still exists within Jamie about why he wants to go back there. Is it for Tommen, his king, to fulfil the duty he's now dedicated himself to as Lord Commander, as well as his secret desire to watch over his son, or is it to see the woman who sent him here in the first place? Ah, yes, Cersei. We wondered how long it would be before we had to visit that particular aspect of Jamie's mindset. We've mentioned Cersei a fair bit through Dance, probably more than Jamie, and a fair bit considering that she hasn't actually appeared in it yet, but this is obviously a different mention. For one, this guy was actually involved in Cersei's feast storyline, her rule of King's Landing, and utter ruination of it. Other than Tycho Nestoris, we've not really had that from anyone else in Dance that I can remember off the top of my head. On top of that, Cersei is, I don't think I need to tell you, a major, major part of who Jaime is. Lately, that importance has been challenged as the two butted heads before Jaime was sent away, and then he also found out about her indiscretions on top of that, the one she got up to while Jaime was away at war. Now, to be fair, Jaime had already made a conscious choice to separate from her and her father before that all went down, a choice that we were overjoyed with and we saw him double down on, and that was all before the Riverlands trip. So that vibe is really just kind of uh, well set in him by now, that's just part of him. And that's all evidenced by his feast ending, when Cersei wrote that letter begging for his help with everything that was going on with the High Sparrow, and Jaime just threw it straight in the fire. Now do you remember cheering? Because I certainly remember cheering. Yet as great as that moment was, and how proud we were and are for Jaime, he is still considering the actual realities in front of him. He will have to go back at some point, and she will be there, and he'll have to put up with the brunt of her maniacal anger over his choosing not to rescue her. This is if she's still alive, of course. Yet even while he thinks on how he's in no state to help her anyway, and also she's guilty, so how could he really, he also reminds us of part of the reason why he doesn't want to help by repeating his famous mantra. She's been fucking Lancel and Osman Kettleblack and Moonboy for all I know. Yeah, it's good to be bad for classics, isn't it? How many times do we have to say that during Feast? We leave that behind for the duty of the day, sorting this all out as Jamie enters the Bracken Siege lines. The boredom he spoke of earlier is evidenced by no one making any sort of fuss whatsoever about Jamie just walking in with his small party. And rather than hang around, he heads straight for Jonas Bracken's tent to take care of things, and he rings confidence with every step. We've seen him sort out the siege before, He's telling his men this is only going to take a second. George is even highlighting the sound of his sword in its scabbard just to really give him the atmosphere. And then he's just barging in the tent like the cool guy he is. Now, anyway, not always been a cool guy, but he is better. You know the story. And talk about timing. In a very similar scene to what we saw at Riverrun, Jamie has to deal with another commander whose priorities might not be exactly where Jamie wants them to be, as lovely as the alternative apparently is. Clearly, Jonas Bracken is put on the back foot slightly for being caught in the act here, and Jamie enjoys his upper hand by letting Jonas sweat, while he also partakes in some witty repartee and takes his time looking at Jonas's partner, Hildy. 
He gets some internal shots in against Cersei as well, because of course that's just Jamie. But he also has hints of sexual attraction to this Hildy, which is a quick reminder that Jamie has started to have some of these types of thoughts to women other than Cersei for the first time in his life. He did so in Feast, so this is George just giving us a little bit of a reminder while Jonas continues to get across what type of guy he really is as he struggles to put his breeches on. Personally, I'm put in mind of a kind of Danny DeVito character, or maybe the king, the father from Disenchantment, if you've seen that. I can definitely hear him doing that kind of frustrated moan right now. Here's another quote for you. And what is it you like in a woman, my lord? Innocence. In a woman, I said, not a daughter. So this is from Hildy, and obviously the innocence response from Jamie is great just for getting across to us his feelings about what Cersei's done, but Hildy then bringing up the word daughter sends him down the unfortunately short road of thinking about Marcella, another lost part of his life that he wants to regain no matter what Cersei says. And to be honest, it's about time, Jamie. The word Marcella appears just ten times in all Jamie chapters, and the grand majority of those are either from Cersei's mouth or just as an afterthought just being included as listing the children. While Jamie eventually comes to think upon Joffrey after Joffrey's death and has resolved to try and include himself a bit more in raising Tommen, he's never given Marcella the same type of consideration. Not at all. Some of that is clearly because Tommen has actually, actually been there physically in front of him, so he's obviously taking more space of Jamie's mind. There's also the danger around Tommen, his position as king, and his need is a lot stronger, considering that. Whereas Marcella is far away and assumedly safe, at least on the surface. But let's not give Jamie too much of a pass. He's thought of Marcella least and last because she's a girl, and therefore valued less by this society and this man in general. We can be glad he's thinking of her, but let's not ignore the facts here. Still, it is cool timing given his thinking on how the truth would affect the Dornish deal. It wasn't that long ago we were down in Dorn, with Marcella being tossed around as a playing piece on the board. We know there's lots going on down there, so the idea of Jamie getting involved as well is pretty damn interesting. Then again, he's giving almost as much value to Duran being annoyed at a false sale as he is thinking on how this would affect Marcella personally, so again, let's not give him too much credit. In fairness, yes, he hasn't seen her since Winterfell, yeah, I know, that is a long time ago, but not giving Marcella her due is unacceptable by my standards. With that, Hildy takes her leave, though not without a rather unique goodbye to Jamie, one he finds himself musing on. We can assume it's never going to go any further with Jamie and Hildy, unfortunately, considering how this chapter ends, but perhaps George is really repeating this idea of Jamie being attracted to other women just to offset the arrival of who's going to turn up later on in a woman he could actually love. And we very briefly discussed Jonas Brecken's marriage and the status of it before getting right down to business. First order is the blackfish here. Again, that's how important it is. Jonas denies it, even though he's fond of Brynden in the way almost all the Riverlords are, which makes it that much harder to find him, of course. Jonas claims that he is so dedicated to his having bent the knee that he would even imprison the Blackfish should he show up. Now, is this just a matter of uh, trying to impress your new boss, or is it true? I think it's probably towards the latter. My instinct is Jonas wouldn't be the one to help Brynden, given all he thinks he's about to gain by sticking with the Iron Throne, but I don't think he'd give him up either. So what about Titus, then, the man inside this siege and inside this castle? He likes the Blackfish just as much, and together with him, they are the two remaining lords still officially sharing the same cause. We suspect there are likely many more river lords out there unofficially raised to throw off the Lannisters and Freys as part of this rotten Tywin legacy and paper-thin rule, and maybe Brynden is secretly with them, but it's definitely worth checking whether he's come here first. You could argue that he wouldn't be so foolish, as this is a rather obvious place to go, and he would know that Jaime would be coming here next, but you've got to check, haven't you? Jonas still points out his siege lines as protection, even if we think they aren't all that secure, but really he just wants to boast about how he's about to win said siege. This is where Jamie gives the important news. There'll be no such victory. Titus will be offered terms. The Blackwoods will re-enter the King's Peace, and this will all be settled. Jonas will still get to win, just not in the exact fashion he'd like. And we can tell he's a bit grumbly about that, but he can't appear too ungrateful, so instead he focuses on what he might get out of it in terms of terms, which Jamie lays out for us here. 
It includes all the usual stuff of swearing, this and that, and losing some gold, and more importantly, some hostages. This is where Jonas kind of perks up a bit. He interjects and suggests that Jamie takes Titus's lone daughter. That's against the grain, because we know generally in this society, sons are considered more valuable, unfortunately. But we can also see that Jonas is trying to use his insider knowledge to cause as much personal pain as he can to Titus, just because he can, and because he's clearly that cruel. That's the nature of this rivalry. With that little cherry on the cake, Bracken now turns his attention to what he personally is going to get out of this deal based on Tywin's pre-death promises, in a similar way to what we've seen from Wyman Mandley and some of the phrase since Tywin's death as well. As Jonas rattles off the long list of place names, Jamie points out that this is a pretty big deal for the Brackens. They'll be gaining an awful lot. He's likely wondering if Jonas is trying to embellish the deal now that Tywin is not around to contend such a claim and basically just take advantage of Jamie being new to everything. We know Jamie is always aware of such possibilities and he's always trying to move against them. He doesn't say as much, but Jonas still feels the need to defend himself, which he does by getting into the age-old bickering of claiming that they were all Bracken lands once anyway. And this is more a case of just taking back what is rightfully theirs. It doesn't take a side to work out that the Blackwoods would say the exact same thing if they were asked. Jamie notes that one place has been left out in this little bargaining here. Pennytree, a small village between the hills known as the Teats. That is separate, it's a royal fife of fairly recent making and something that Jonas is leaving out, perhaps to prove he's not trying to take more than he's due, only what he claims is rightfully his. There's a very brief mention here, but the word Pennytree sticks out to us, of course, thanks to the Doug and Egg novellas and Sir Arlen of Pennytree, Dunk's former master. In that series, we're told that Dunk has never been to Pennytree and doesn't even know where it is, but for all we know, maybe he does find it later on in his life. Or we'd hope so anyway, that'd be cool. Either way, just connecting the place to those d and novellas is very fitting, considering we've got Brienne coming back to us later on. When Jonas, who you can practically hear licking his lips at this point, reminds Jamie that this was all promised by Lord Tywin in return for delivering Titus, Jamie starts getting very clever by pointing out, ah, but you haven't delivered Titus, have you? That's why I'm here. And if I help you to do so, then I'm delivering Titus, not you. It's easy to imagine Jonas going purple-faced in indignation. His claim would be fine if Jamie hadn't shown up. They would be starved out and then they would be delivered, wouldn't they? So this is hardly fair. We bothered to switch up, you can hear him saying. We did what you asked, we fought, and we deserve recompense. The map is yours. The lands are ours. It's said that a Lannister always pays his debts. We fought for you, not half as long as you fought against us. It's another pretty cool quote that sums up this ever-twisting nature of loyalty and war and what the actual rules are. We've had lots of discussion about the loyalty of swords in the war over in Essos, but that's of an entirely different nature to what happened in the War of the Five Kings, where it was honour and loyalty that mattered. Except, is it that different really? Jonas saw which side was going to win, saw what it might cost him if he were not on that side, and then saw an opportunity to make some dough out of such an arrangement. The words might all be different, but really, how different is that to what Brown Ben Plum did? Ask yourselves. He also highlights the kind of falsehood there is around such deals when Jonas argues that they were pardoned for fighting with the Starks. None of it is supposed to count, it's supposed to be stricken from the record. Whereas Jamie is pointing out that that kind of thing can never really be forgotten, no matter what the official word is. We've already seen this type of thing multiple times over with the phrase and many other houses as well. Jonas continues, not only pointing out the pardon, but that he is owed. He suffered at the hands of the Lannisters, Greyville Clegane specifically, and he wants something back for it. Jamie's retort is that we didn't kill you, that's your payment. Now, that's more of an in-the-moment type thing. If this was how things were actually done, no one would ever switch sides, would they? Or at least they would take a lot longer to do so, and this war would have dragged out even longer. So Jamie can't really suggest that as an actual policy. He is kind of weak on that point, he's not doing so well there. Still, he is philosophically arguing, well, how much reward do you deserve for only coming over when it really suited you? When my side arranged the betrayal of Rob at the Twins, and it became clear that you would not win. You didn't have some leap of faith or inspiration to come help us, you didn't really stick your neck out, you just got backed into a corner. 
But again, I say Jamie is showing some of his rookiness here, some of his inexperience. Tywin knew the same thing about why House Bracken was going to come over, as well as many others, but he knows you're not supposed to point it out. That's part of the deal. He knew it was all part of the game, and at the end of the day, this was needed by the Lannisters, so you just stay in your lane and pretend that they did it willingly. Then the deal gets made, and we all go home. Jamie also points out that the deal was made with a dead man, as were some of these crimes that were committed. This is a new era with a new Jamie to get used to. Here's another quote. You did declare for Stark and kept faith with him until Lord Walder killed him, murdered him, and a dozen good men of my own blood. Lord Janus turned his head and spat. Aye, I kept faith with the young wolf, as I'll keep faith with you, so long as you treat me fair. There's some interesting little tidbits in there. Note that Jonas wants to correct that Rob Stark was murdered, not just killed. The distinction is still important to him and the Riverlands in general. And he says he'll keep faith with Jamie and the Crown, but only as long as he's treated fairly. He wants something out of it. This is not a matter of blind loyalty or owed faith. So we like that quote as evidence that somewhere deep down, Jonas Bracken does still care about House Stark, and he didn't want it to end that way, as he says that he lost men at the Red Wedding too. And this is more about trying to make the best of a bad situation. So we can lean a bit closer to him for all that. Plus, it's just an interesting discussion on the nature of the feudal setup and what a lord like Jonas should be expecting from those up above him on the next tier, etc., etc. And in fairness, I will say, while we're being nice to Jonas, that there does lie a difference between him and sellswords. Perhaps Brown Ben really does care for the lives of his men, but overall, his goal is to make a more comfortable life for himself. Jonas Bracken, while still trying to get paid, also has men sworn to him to protect. He has a family, he has the future of his house to consider, so perhaps there is a wider gap between the two than I suggested earlier. Jamie can see the sense in taking such a road, though he still admires Titus Blackwood for sticking to his laurels even with the high risk. Now satisfied with making Jonas sweat a bit, Jamie allows that he will get paid. Not as much as he might like, but he will get paid. Jonas doesn't want to challenge that, lest Jamie change his mind, so he settles for trying to get himself another boon. If he can't gain, let Titus lose, as he encourages Jamie to be harsh with the Blackwoods. Remember, whatever the circumstances, at least I came over to your side, and they never did. Besides, as he reminds us again, they are supposed to be usurpers historically. Now, we know that can be argued, we'll see some of that later. With that, Jonas is left behind as Jamie finally makes for Raventree Hall itself. It's a little bit of a repeat. We once saw him heading towards Riverrun for a very similar parlay with the Blackfish. That one did not go as planned whatsoever, but this is a more experienced, more confident Jamie heading into a different situation. Now we get to re-meet Titus Blackwood, a man we haven't actually seen on the page since the Storm of Swords. I'm going to guess it was Hostetoli's funeral was the last time we actually saw him. Maybe we did see him after then, but last one I remember. And the effects of war and of siege have taken their toll on this man that we once knew. Even if he does still carry his head high, plus he still has his cool armour and even cooler cloak. He is also not only honourable, but straightforward. He doesn't beg or plead or give empty niceties. He tells Jamie straight up that he doesn't really want him here. But he also admits that he believes Jamie to be the much better option for how this might end. So all in all, this parlay is way better than the first already. Titus makes it clear from the start he will play ball, but only with Jamie, not the Brackens. And that's fine by Jamie, that's exactly what he wants actually, but it does make you wonder on the nature of Titus's stubbornness. We know he was a staunch supporter of Rob, but if he had been besieged by Lannisters from the beginning, instead of Brackens, would he have held out half as long? Interesting question. And that straightforwardness obviously heats a sweet spot with Jamie, as when he asks if he has to kneel here in the mud and in front of his own men, Jamie says no. We can do it privately, in a nicer spot. It's an offer of honour and pride, one that is surely appreciated by Titus, and just lets this whole negotiation go a bit smoother between the two, even if they are enemies. So we have to give props to both of them here for playing it properly. How many men would Jamie have actually given this opportunity to? Probably not many. So up into the cool-looking solar of the Blackwoods, Jamie goes, allowing him a proper look at the gigantic weirwood tree within the castle walls. He uses the word colossal again, just like earlier, but here we hit on the key characteristic of the tree that I mentioned earlier, it is dead and bare, 
and Titus claims that is due to bracken poison. Now, how sure are we of that? Again, we don't really have time to go into it, but it does bring up some interesting questions, doesn't it? How do you actually kill a weirwood? Can you actually kill a weirwood, or can they come back? That might be something else that we find. For now, the maesters say it's going to eventually turn to stone. And when it does, that's going to be one hell of a statue to look at, isn't it? Jamie says he knows the tree by reputation. He knows about the ravens, for example. And again, much more questions for us. Why did they come back if the tree is dead? No one knows how or why they come. And given all that we've seen of their brethren up in the north and surrounding Bloodraven, we do have to assume that this is of some importance, some highlight. Either way, it just lends a lot of coolness to the picture, doesn't it? The kind we really dig into. So again, I say these ravens, they're just another hint to this being a place of power, even of unforgotten power, of importance. I'm going to cross those fingers even tighter that we will find out more one day. Unfortunately now is not the place again. Such mysteries have to get left behind as Titus returns to the political scene when he asks about Edmure and what's happened to him. Note that Jonas made no such inquiry, but then it's more likely he's already been told. Still, it is a mark against Jonas's column. Jamie fills in Titus on what's been happening with Edmure, to which Titus replies that it's still a bitter deal for his former liege lord even if he does get to live. His reputation will be forever tarnished, and that's something that can't actually be applied to Titus. Even though he's officially lost, at least he fought. Privately, Jamie knows the unfairness of such an assessment as he reflects on the darkness, the timonism that he had to summon from himself to get that deal with Edmure done. I'm sure you recall. We know how big of a deal that was for him, and without it, we might not be here now. Still, it is an interesting argument into this Jamie trying to be a better person, but that meaning having to be a lot darker in some respects. So there's always a really interesting dichotomy. Friendly as these two are being, there's still room for some subtle politics as the conversation once again turns to Brendan Tully. This time it is Titus bringing it up, which is a very smart move, as he would obviously imply that he doesn't know where he is. That's not good for Jamie, but it's still clever. I offered to let him take the black. Instead, he fled. Jamie smiled. Do you have him here, perchance? No. Would you tell me if you did? Now it was Titus Blackwood's turn to smile. Another cool little interaction. We're getting some really good quotes here at the beginning of the chapter. And this one is between two opponents who clearly respect each other. I like it. As mentioned, I don't think Brendan is here, and clearly neither does Jamie, so he doesn't follow up on it. Although I don't think it's impossible that the Blackfish came here at one point, even if it's unlikely. Wherever he is, I think Titus would like to put Jamie off the scent as much as possible, even if that includes making Jamie think, well, maybe he is here. Just leave the door open for doubt. Maybe it slows Jamie down a bit. Maybe Brendan gets a little bit of extra breathing room. For now, Jamie leaves behind such possibilities to focus on these terms again, and once more, he repays Titus's cooperation and even friendliness by not making him actually kneel. This is a pretty big deal to men such as Lee's, and it's a gesture that will go a long way. For the most part, the terms go smoothly. All the bits that Jamie actually cares about are done with ease, so now it's down to the nitty-gritty of Jonas Bracken's map, a subject that Titus terms the Turncloak's reward, just so we're sure of his opinion. And note that Jamie doesn't correct him. In fact, he essentially agrees while adding the tidbit that Jonas won't be getting as much as he wants, another bone thrown to this new bestie of his. Slowly, it is argued out. Jonas will receive this place and that place and the other place. They're all names that really mean nothing to us. Honeytree might be the most important, but within the text, this is his first mention. And all that's left after that is the taking of a hostage. Immediately, we see that Jonas was correct in how to hurt Titus most as he is stricken when Jamie suggests the taking of his daughter Bethany. The idea hurts him so much that he's even ready to offer up any number of other family members to take her place, even one of his own four sons. That could be perceived as callousness to these other Blackwoods, but we shouldn't be too hasty. Not only is Titus trying to protect a small child, the youngest of his remaining children, and therefore the one who needs protecting the most, a girl who is happy and loves her home, and who he absolutely doesn't want to become another Sansa, he's also just showing some genuine love and appreciation for a daughter. And that is so rare in this series, where daughters are often second-rate, that we should really appreciate it while we can. So Titus pushes the sons as an option instead. 
Clearly, he doesn't want to give up any of his children if he can help it, but if he must, he'd rather send one of his sons, who might even enjoy parts of it, rather than Tiny Bethany. When Jamie turns down the offer of yet another squire, we double down on Titus wanting to protect the younglings, given that he's just lost his youngest son a mere week ago. So we have to give him some more respect for holding up through this meeting so well and not being just devastated all the time. On top of that, we are reminded that Lucas was killed at the Red Wedding just to draw some similarities between he and Jonas, and that they've not even returned his body yet, cruel as the phrase are. Jamie promises that he will get Lucas's body back, and I believe him, I hope he gets the opportunity to do that. Given the end of the chapter, maybe he won't. That leaves Brynden, the eldest and the heir, along with Hoster, just in case you're in doubt about where Titus Blackwood's loyalties lie. Hoster is a bookish boy, which reminds Jamie of Tyrion. In small part to that, and in large part to how amicable this, this meeting has been, Jamie accepts the second-born, Hoster, as a hostage. Even when really, the party line should have been to take Brynden, given that he is the heir. Titus also clearly values him more, and as the last standing supporter of Rob Stark, Titus should probably receive the harshest punishment. But Jamie does not choose that because of how the way the meeting has gone. Is this some kind of ploy from Titus to wind up with this exact result? Or has he just been genuine throughout? Whichever it is, he's clearly glad at how it's all come to finish. But he's still going to try and pay Jonas Bracken back for his suggestion of Bethany, as he tries his best to get one of Bracken's daughters taken as a hostage as well. Again, the similarities between the two men are almost comical. So now these two apparent chums break from each other, with Jamie getting another mark in his column for not taking any food that this castle clearly needs right now in the present, to say nothing of the stark future. We then get to meet the tall, lanky hoster as we leave, and he seems pretty unbothered by the whole arrangement. In fact, too unbothered, so perhaps Jamie regrets just how smoothly that meeting went. Maybe he should have injected a little more of what he did with Edmure. This is no game. He's not supposed to be making friends. If this isn't taken seriously, they'll end up back at war. We've eaten less food and people will die. So he gives a parting reminder. That might have been a very nice negotiation, but if there is ever a hint of rebellion from any Blackwood, Hoster will be killed. Do not doubt it. He is not Ryman Frey to make such false threats. It will be done. No. All trace of warmth had left Lord Blackwood's mouth. I know who I am dealing with, Kingslayer. And that was so much for that budding little friendship. Still, it's hard to have any different reaction when being told your child might be murdered at any point. Maybe Titus had fooled himself with the meeting. Maybe he was still playing on being a little bit rebellious. Maybe he just doesn't like this potential loss shoved in his face so soon after losing one son already. But whichever it is, he's copying his old friend the Blackfish now and naming Jamie Kingslayer instead of the Lord or Sir titles he's been using so far. With Titus done, that means getting to the other side of what is essentially the same coin, another meeting with Jonas as Jamie and Hoster ride out from Raventree. Jamie updates him on what he's gained, and Jonas is happy enough, even if he throws in a for now, because you never want to be the one to say there won't be more fighting between the two families. And then he gets on with devaluing Hoster as a hostage. He's clearly annoyed he didn't hit Titus where it hurts in taking Bethany away, and he didn't even get one of his more traditionally strong sons. But if he thinks that's bad, Jamie has even worse news. However things might have ended with Titus, he's still going to take his advice and even things out a bit more by demanding one of Jonas's daughters. So clearly, Jamie does have a favourite between these two. And Jonas is angry at this. He's wondering what he did it all for, if he's going to get the same punishment as the Blackwoods. And to be fair, Jamie might have pushed him into rebellion mode a lot quicker than he would have done previously. But at least Jonas is allowed to choose which daughter, although some would say that's crueler, and has some time before he must give one of them up. Still, it is a cruel day, and I do wonder if we're going to see some repercussions and fallout from this at some point. Now, Jamie truly does depart the area, along with his escort. They arrive at Pennytree for the night, with Jamie half hoping he'll be able to pick up the scent of the Blackfish, or Beric, or any of the other numerous outlaws that plague his constant thoughts. 
Now, somewhat curiously, George uses Hoss to give a bit of history lessons on Aegon IV, these two shapely hills, and the respective Bracken and Blackwood mistresses that that particular king took. So we get to prove that Hoster is a pretty brainy guy straight off, while George gets to fill in some of his beloved backstory, even if we're not really sure why this is being really focused on here. It all leads to Jamie inquiring where this eternal rivalry comes from in the first place, and Hoster seems to be completely in his element as he tells the tales. Perhaps most important is his recognition of the bias of historical sources, half of the maces being Bracken and half being Blackwood. That's pretty good. We know George loves the idea of an unreliable narrator, so really this is just that same idea extended out over historical context. As proven when Hoster claims it was the Blackwoods who were kings first and the Brackens the usurpers, in obvious contrast to what we heard earlier. While Jamie has a moment of fondly remembering Tyrion and his similarity to this young boy, although only for a moment mind you, Hoster does a great job of pointing out how pointless the whole thing is, how no one knows the truth of it, how we might be talking about a history that's five centuries or multiple millennia, or how it's equally possible that none of these supposed beginnings happened at all. He even relays that pieces have been made over the years when Jamie chuckles over that fruitlessness. He specifies the piece that Jaehaerys made just to get some fire and blood in there, but more to the point, it means the two families have mingled so much over the centuries that they're almost one and the same. They just wear different names. Hoster is resigned to the idea that this will never end. The fight will be eternal thanks to those old wrongs done to forebears. The dancing upon the strings, as Tyrion would put it. And really, we can extend this fort out across Westeros in general for what is holding them back as a society. Why so many die needlessly, and why they are who they are. Really, what we're doing is stretching back, reaching into the themes of Feast and the kind of cycle of revenge and how it's a bad idea, as well as the consequences of war and how it affects everybody, and the fact that it just kind of comes around again and again. It's just, again, cyclical. So yes, we might be in dance, but we're borrowing a little bit from the feast book here. And Jamie has a retort for it anyway. There is one way to end the cycle, he says, a way that Tywin Lannister would have been fond of, or was fond of rather. If you want to stop centuries of fighting and death, apparently the answer is to condense it all into one big session of fighting and death. Perhaps this is still him rankled at Hoster and Titus for taking him too lightly. I think it is also the underlying effect of having to collect two children that one day might have to die for their father's crimes. Certainly, children remain the theme of this moment, as Jamie remembers his father's brutal war crimes both in the Westerlands, in his early career, and in King's Landing during the Rebellion. He was witness to that, remember, and that touched him on his soul. And what a time to bring it up, the death of Aegon and Rhaenys. This might be Jamie's lone appearance, but... To be thinking on such when we've got a whole book revolving around one of those supposed crimson children, pretty timely. Hoster continues such dramatics when he asks if this philosophy is why Jaime killed all the Starks. Now, ironically enough, Jaime didn't have a hand in killing any of the Starks, despite his intention to kill Bran and his kicking off the whole war, of course. Besides, he knows not all of the children are dead, and we only know that Rob is. Could argue that Rickon is, but who knows. Jaime obviously thinks there's only two. We know better. And that gets him thinking of Sansa and Arya. He knows Aya is not really in the north, but he keeps up the pretense here. Whereas Sansa, well, Sansa kicks off his thinking about Brienne for the first time, making us relive all of Brienne's many feast adventures, and what timing it should be that he happens to think of Brienne right here and now, given what's coming up in a minute. He also gives his opinion on how Sansa should just go and forget her starkness. Well, I'm sorry, Jamie, but lots of people have given her that advice before, and she's never taking it. So we move on to Pennytree then, a place hurt by the war, but also a sign that times have finally begun to move on. What a shame is likely to get so much worse again in the future. We move past the tree the village is named after, this big one with its many pennies. Yeah, we get a lot of tree talk in this chapter. What fun it is to be back in the Riverlands. And Jamie opines that this village has fared so well because the people have been able to survive here due to the large holdfast, the larger than usual holdfast, which is where the well-drilled villagers have gone as soon as they saw Jamie's men. We learn how they've learned this survival skill, even with Jamie's declaration that they are king's men. 
That means nothing to these villagers now though, for it was King's men who came and abused them before. Really, really abused them. And back in Feast, again just to stretch back into that book, we talked about the weakening of the faith in the crown here in the Riverlands a lot. This is our only opportunity here in Dance, but it's still just as vivid and relevant. This is Tywin's grand legacy, you know that one we've talked about before. He secured the throne for his family while ensuring that the throne doesn't mean anything to these people anymore. And I'm convinced that's going to turn out to be of high importance later on, with whichever regime we're dealing with by then. When Sir Kenos suggests they teach the villagers a lesson in obedience, which would be just as cyclical as the Bracken v Blackwood feud that Hoster just explained, Jamie gets another opportunity to show off his wisdom. He knows these people have more than enough reason to hide in this holdfast and to not trust them. To bash the gate in would merely be an exercise in foolish ego. He would lose soldiers. He would be forced to kill some of the people he's trying to save. This is one of the few villages on the rise with the possibility of food production, and he'd ruin that just to show them who's boss? Well, plenty of people would, unfortunately, but for Jamie, this is a wise moment, a moment of leadership, and another mark in the Jamie Good Guy column, especially when he gives the command to merely shelter but not take anything from these people. So can't play do, and Jamie wanders on this mysterious tree, but fortunately he doesn't get time to ask, because, as sudden as you like, George comes at us with a very, very surprising ending. It's Brienne, everybody. Brienne of Tarth, our most beloved. She has ridden straight into their camp and into the plot. Bold as you like. Brienne, who many would say was the big star of Feast. Brienne, so closely removed from one of, and possibly even the best chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire with her hero moment. Brienne, whom we know to be the catalyst that first pushed Jamie towards this life of being a better man, who literally saved and changed his life. She's here, after so long, and we obviously love it. If it's a real treat to get Jamie back, what about Brienne? Come on, let's not forget that feast arc. That amazing, amazing feast arc with the amazing, amazing closing moments. Brienne, she's the best. She is the absolute best. We talked about it more than enough back in those feast episodes, and she's here on our page. Clearly, none of us were expecting this. The first time readers probably weren't even expecting Jamie. That's one surprise. Now we get an even better one at the end. George is really being quite nice to us today, isn't he? Obviously, Jamie is incredibly surprised. So much so he can barely take it all in. His eyes are rushing over Brienne's terrible injuries, reminding us of what she's been through of late, especially the horrific mark left by Biter. He tries to address it, but Brienne is of one purpose. She touched the hilt of her sword, the sword that he had given her, Oathkeeper. So the highlighting of this movement really gives the evidence of Brienne shouting the word sword when Lady Stoneheart gave her the choice at the end of her feast arc. At the same time, it's also very, very important to Jamie. That was a big moment, that was a big decision in what he gave to Brienne there, path he chose to go down. And while the name sword is really, really important for who Brienne is, is as a person, let's not that that isn't super relevant to Jamie as well. Brienne promises that she has found Sansa, the girl that Jamie was just talking about, and an incredibly valuable person still, as a name, a possible tool for peace, and a possible source of information on Tyrion and on Joffrey's death. Again, Jamie is flabbergasted by this turn up for the books, and is keen to see if he can get his hands on this prize, to which Brienne promises he can. The girl. Have you found her? I have, said Brienne, made of tough. Where is she? A day's ride. I can take you to her, sir, but you will need to come alone. Elsewise, the hound will kill her. Wow. Mic drop, as big as they come. A cliffhanger, as big as they come. Again, Jamie might only have the one chapter here, but what a bloody chapter, and what a damn ending. I would say this ending is as much a cliffhanger for any final POV chapter in the book, save for John probably. And there's so many elements to unpack that are made so much better by having read Feast. But even if we hadn't, let's just say we hadn't. Well, let's just say that we hadn't had Brienne's arc in Feast. Jamie going off with Brienne would be exciting enough given all their history and Brienne's influence on Jamie and all we hope for their future relationship. But then mix it with everything we do know with Feast and, well, the grim truth comes out, doesn't it? We know this is a trick. 
we know this is a trap, is vengeance and the idea of payback that Jamie has just been exploring as fruitless with Hoster Blackwood just to tie the themes together. We know that Brienne is lying. She is breaking her oath and her honour to Jamie because she had to save a child's life in pod. One oath crossed another and someone had to lose. They make you swear and swear, you know. That's the idea, isn't it? That's the theme. That at some point you can get caught out, as Jamie was once long ago. Now Brienne is suffering through a very similar situation. So, on the command of Lady Stoneheart, she is here to tempt Jamie to come off the beaten track, leave his men and protection behind, and enter the wild riverlands where the rebels, specifically whatever the Brotherhood Without Banners is now, reign. And there he will be judged by Catelyn Stark, nay Tully. The woman who heard his name when her son was murdered in front of her, and in all likelihood he will be found wanting. These are all things we know, and that knowledge is still what makes this cliffhanger so appealing, because it mixes with the fact that we know nothing really about the future. In the epilogue, sure we'll discover that Jamie accepts this offer, but that's about it. We don't have any wins previews for Brienne or Jamie, or Lady Stoneheart as she should return as a POV. So the possibilities and theories, they're everywhere, aren't they, about what this could mean, what's gonna happen when he gets there, is there gonna be some kind of trial, who fights for who? You know all the theories, I'm sure you've seen them, there's loads out there, and they're jolly good fun to imagine. What we do know is there's going to be an awful lot of thematic talk about the keeping of oaths, about loyalty and revenge. Remember the very important discussion Jamie once had with Catelyn Stark. Remember the deal that she thinks Jamie broke. We've got to consider all the things that both of these parties think and might not know the whole truth of. We've got old assumptions and prejudice and everything else. That's without even mentioning Jamie seeing that a dead woman is alive. That's going to be a pretty big deal. He's not really had to come across anything to do with the mystical, magical half of the storyline at all, has he? So that would be his first introduction to that. And I mean, really, I could spend another quarter of an hour talking about the possibilities of Jamie and how important that meeting with Catelyn will be. Again, that's even ignoring Brienne and what the Brotherhood is and what's up to and the overall future of the Riverlands that this is going to affect. It really is big stuff. And I believe I think I mentioned this on Radio West or some of the live streams once, but Lady Stoneheart and this Riverlands plot is probably my number one want for wins. If I could only learn one thing about wins, if there's only one storyline I could read, that would be it. I think that's my number one. I want wins for this reason right here. So again, unfortunately, we do not have the time to go through all of these possibilities for Jamie, even though this is his last chapter today and we should really give him the time. Hopefully we'll find another space at some point to talk about that. But at least we can say, given what we've seen of Jamie through Feast and in this book and even in Storm as well, his redemption, that's not quite a redemption, is not going to be clear-cut at all. We can be certain there's going to be some element of tragedy in there. I don't think we're going to get out of this situation with everyone being friends and chumly. That's pretty unlikely. And really, this is a preview of what's going to happen across the board at the end of this series in Winds and Dream, where George, who spent all these years giving us uh, heroes or just people we like on both sides, eventually they are going to come into loggerheads. Obviously, the big, biggest example of that is Daenerys when she comes against people that we really, really like. But this is going to be one of the first examples because we love Brienne. We still love Catelyn, whatever she's become. And many of us really, really like Jamie now. And as I say, you can't have everyone win because they want such different things. So this is what the end of the series is going to be for us. George putting us into conflict of who do we want to come out on top? What do we actually want now in this story? And it's going to be very, very tough for us. Now, that's the magic of the whole story, of course. That's the magic of George's skill. So it's really cool that we're starting to get to that point now of these rejoining of the big characters, the rejoining of storylines. What's going to come out of this? Again, there's just so many possibilities. Could be how Jamie gets up to the wall. Could be, I don't know, maybe they're all going north. I won't go into it now because we spend all day, but it's damn good. So like I say, unfortunately, that is our goodbye to Jamie. So briefly, so sweet. So unfortunate because I really, really love Jamie chapters and I'd take a lot more if I could. 
We could also spend some time discussing on why George felt he should hold this particular chapter back for dance. He could have put it on the end of Feast, I suppose, but probably that storyline with Cersei was a better cliffhanger there. And it's just good to kind of reintroduce Feast here as we, again, combine everything back together so it's all in one book for wins, we would hope anyway. So goodbye, Jamie. Thank you for that. That was a really, really good chapter. We love to be back in the Riverlands. We got Raven Tree Hall. We got what is supposedly the official ending of the war. Technically, there's no more war in the Riverlands now. Okay, good luck with that. I hope it lasts. I do not think it will. So tough as it is, as much as I don't want to, it's goodbye to the Riverlands. We'll see you in the next book possibly even in the prologue, just to name drop for another Radio Ross Lowe stream I was on. Let's now finish off our chapters today with going back up to the north front, to the cold, unfortunately, with John 10. Ding dong, it is the third and final wedding time for A Dance with Dragons. And the first one we saw back at Winterfell was beyond brutal. The second, in Marine, was still very unhappy. So we ask now, can we be delivered an actual happy occasion? And it actually turns out, yes, we can for the most part. George is going to throw us a bone. I'm not sure what kind of mood he was in when he decided to give us all those cool things in Jamie and now a nice time at Castle Black. But whatever he did that day, I hope he does it some more because because uh, it obviously inspires him to give us some nice things that we like. Still, even considering that, the fact is we're going to see a very different wedding here, again, for the third time. The northern one, okay, that wasn't all that different to the weddings we've seen previously, and we didn't even get to see most of the Miranese, but now we get a wedding of R'hllor, of the Red Priest, and we can bet that is going to be very, very different. At the beginning, here, in the opening pages, it just seems like Melisandre is doing her usual Nightfire chant with some slightly different wording. It's only George identifying the gathered as wedding guests that tells us what's going on here. And at the beginning, we've really got no clue whose wedding this is. Doesn't make any sense. Although really, there's only two possibilities. One is Val has returned and has been coerced into marrying one of these southern fools like we've seen suggested before, but that seems unlikely. The other possibility, the second, is John has been incredibly quick in sorting out this Alice Carstark situation even though marriage was absolutely not mentioned as a possible avenue in his last chapter. And I suppose, yeah, sure, there could be wildlings that hadn't taken the Night's Watch oaths getting married, maybe. They all officially took Melisandre's deal, so it would be done under a law, but we've had no inkling of such, and it, again, wouldn't make much sense, so most of our minds probably go straight to Alice. Before we get confirmation, we see that the snowstorm is continuing, as it will forevermore in this project. It's even colder than usual here at Castle Black, which is saying something, and everyone, minus Ghost, the true creature of winter, is feeding it. Now George chooses to mention Alice Carstark pretty early on, which gives a base to our guesses, as she relays some old northern wisdom about snowy weddings meaning cold marriages, which is perhaps not the best advice to have in the north, where it, you know, snows a lot. Either way, it gets John analysing Queen Celise, this guest he's becoming less and less fond of, and who surely has a very chilly marriage with Stannis. John has met both husband and wife now, and can barely detect any warmth between the two of them. Just can't really imagine it, can you? And we know he's right about that. Which is ironic because you can see how much Shalise loves the fire. We're already aware of that as readers, but now John is too. Her fanaticism makes her harder to reason with, makes her more of a danger, and it likely means she would be an accomplice to Melisandre if John should ever choose to move against the Red Woman, so none of it's good news really. He also thinks of Selyse following any order that Melisandre could give, even if it meant the fire burning her Selyse. Such is her level of delusion, and we might see something exactly like that in the future, or, more likely maybe, this is a direct hint to the future of Shireen, much as we don't want to talk about. John also analyses the remaining Queen's men, and decides that they are the bottom of the barrel. It seems that Stannis doubled up on his tactic for who he should leave with both Melisandre and his wife, i.e. all the ones he didn't want to have to put up with. 
Nice one, Stannis, I guess. Melisandre's wedding sermon continues, and we're reminded we still don't really know what's going on. Logic says it must be Alice who's getting married, but to whom? While the Fens are mentioned early as a clue for the eagle-eyed, but as John surveys the many guests, our first clues don't really come in until he notes that some of his brothers have stayed away from the ceremony by way of protest. Now, is that just to this being a red priest wedding, or is it about who the wedding participants are? Or is it both? We're left to ponder such as Mel continues her speech and she's sure to get in some Stannis propaganda at the same time. Although we know he really does need that protection right now that she's promising if he even still lives beneath all that snow thanks to the Asher chapter. Mel thanks the sun and the stars that have actually abandoned them all for now. She wishes for strength, for courage and wisdom for Stannis. Well, he's probably set for the first two. Maybe the third he could do the hand with. And actually I just bring this up because it's very similar to what Fionn asked the Hartree for. Now is when we get absolute confirmation that Alice is the bride, and it looks like John is going to fill in the father's role of giving her away, just so we can have another similarity between he and Theon. When it's her time to approach, we get this quote. The girl smiled in a way that reminded John so much of his little sister that it almost broke his heart. Let him be scared of me, Alice said. The snowflakes were melting on her cheeks, but her hair was wrapped in a swirl of lace that Saturn had found somewhere, and the snow had begun to collect there, giving her a frosty crown. Her cheeks were flushed and red, and her eyes sparkled. Winter's Lady. This is one damn cool character. It's a shame she's come to us so late we could have done with her throughout the series. I actually wonder if Alice is included here because George is giving us a glimpse of what we might have seen of Aya post five year gap. He obviously didn't get to display that in the end. So like with Pretty Maris, this is just him letting off some steam thinking, hey, I actually did create a pretty cool character. I'll just kind of slip it in here with a different name so that you can at least see it. Either way, whether that's true or not, I'm really hoping we get a lot more of Alice in the future because, like I say, she is awesome. However, turn your mind back to the beginning of that quote, the part about John and I and his little sister, because it shows that John still carries the wounds of disappointment from finding out it was never Aya coming to him. Not only does it just hurt that she's not there with him as much as he might like Alice, that's still very painful, it's also now she is assumedly still down at Winterfell with Ramsay, so very, very painful. Finally, our groom is revealed, Sigourn, the new Magna of Fen. So we get to understand why Bowen and the others are grumpy, or more grumpy than usual. It's because this is a pretty major development. This is a big, huge step forward in the integration of the North and of the Wildlings. First, it was just Wildlings as prisoners in this neutral space of the Night's Watch at the Wall. And you can put half the blame of that onto Stannis, so that's okay. Then it was Wildlings as workers, although still in the neutral space. Then there was the talk of garrisons. Then there was talk of the Gift. But now the Wildlings are actually being merged with a proper Northern Westerosi house, they are going in, they're being accepted into actual society. They are part of it now. So again, that is a huge deal. I'm not going to be able to really do it justice for you. If we want to zoom out a little bit and look at, again, these two big societies coming together, this is one of the, the biggest ways it happens. We know the history of Westeros. We know the importance of marrying in when an invading force comes along. We saw that with the Andals. The Targaryens had their own version of it as well, even on a slightly lesser scale. So this is just how it's done. And again, this is a the step towards that. This is a big, big deal. To zoom back in, for someone like Bowen, who does not want the wild things here, it's a nightmare. And if you want to look at it through his foolish, xenophobic lens, then yes, it really does look like John has just taken a giant leap up the ladder of corrupting your country by inviting all these foreigners in. Now, it's just a bit too reflective of some people in some of our countries, isn't it? In our current times, unfortunately. But ignoring Bowen's stupidity, we know this is a big deal for John. The Fens have been labelled as a problem throughout the book, and he didn't know how to solve it. They just weren't going to work with what he was doing with the other wildlings. They were too different, they were too proud. And being that they are also the most threatening as warriors, again, a big deal. So we assume that what we are seeing is them being brought on side, and they are now being accepted into the peace, which is a really, really big load off of John's mind. 
Of course, their strength only adds to the woes of Bowen, and let's not act like most northern lords are going to be happy about this. They'll see it as a mockery of tradition, a waste of what a lot of them have fought against in the wildlings, and they'll start worrying about the futures of their own houses if the wildlings have changed tactics, and instead of just carrying off your daughter, they now come and marry them and get to live in your house. A lot of lords would probably consider that the worst scenario. That's on top of a wedding that isn't the traditional northern god wedding taking place here in the north. There's going to be a lot of worry from some of them that the Night's Watch really is officially taking sides now and is helping this type of thing along. It's all very complicated, as you well know. But that's for the future. Let's keep it to the present a little more, where we likely can't figure out how quite yet, but we do assume that this is going to be a big step forward into solving the cast up problem that John laid out for us last time in his last chapter. Plus, in general, in his mind, this is a great idea. We've been talking negative so far, but let's go to the positive. This is the knitting together of the people he's trying to save. Now they have a real reason to fight for one another instead of against. That's his hope anyway. If it goes wrong, it's going to cost. But if it goes right, it sets a great precedent, which is likely why he's in such awe of Alice right now and is thanking his lucky stars that it's her he's dealing with because she's being so strong, she's really bought into the concept, she's being awesome like we just described. As for Sigourn himself, he's dressed up in all his warrior gear, but really John sees that like with many men who will run into a battle, a single woman can give them pause, which is what's happening here. Still, he does play his part, though not with as much bravery as Alice. Still, we really, really love seeing John give her hand a little squeeze just before he sends her off. What what a great friendship this is that we don't get nearly enough of. This is a really sweet, very kind moment in this little book of darkness. Again, George was obviously in a very good mood when he was writing this. Luckily, we will get to see a little bit more of this friendship before this chapter ends. Meanwhile, Melisandre gets on with the next part of the ceremony in these new vows that we've never seen before, with Alice again proving her awesomeness before she and Sigourn leap the flame ditch together, which in the eyes of Valor apparently makes them one person now as nearly all of the crowd agree. John still has his doubts though as he watches this. He thinks Uncle Karstark, he's going to come and ruin this, and then what will Stannis say? And don't doubt, like I said, we probably won't have to wait too long for someone to claim that the whole thing is illegitimate thanks to it being a Relore wedding and not a proper Northern one. That gets the focus now here though, as it turns out, he's already at Castle Black, fresh off the hunt for his niece as if she were an animal. Luckily, John was smart in this gap between chapters. He got ahead of Northern Custom and freed up his manoeuvrability by going south to arrest Kriegan and his four men before they could come and claim parlay or gastro or any of that stuff. And now instead, they occupy the ice cells. So that's a big hurrah all round for John. We love this move, even if we can see he's really testing the strains of the idea that he doesn't get involved in the politics of the North. Like really, really testing them now. So that all contributes to the book long building of pressure and tension that we know is going to burst at some point. John thinks on the creation of a new sigil for this new House of Fen that is being created before our eyes. They've been very smart in making sure it still has a real Karstark element in order to show that this is a joining, not a conquering. And most of us probably think back to House Baratheon taking the sigil of House Durandon for similar purposes back in the conquest. Again, that is something that's happened throughout the history of Westeros. We might have been worried about awesome Alice being married to the son of Sturr, who himself wasn't exactly a favourite and was definitely not a gentleman. Luckily, John spies that this son does have the capability for tenderness, and there does seem to be a genuine connection between the two. George even points out their breath mingling. You know, just like John's did with Val the last time we saw her. So I'll leave that up to you to make some decisions about what that might mean. So the ceremony is done, and everyone is freezing, so let's move on to the next stage. That's what the majority of guests think at least, but John always has another level to consider, doesn't he? So our most seek refuge from this ever-growing storm via use of the wormways, we should note, we think they're going to be used an awful lot more soon. John gets to work. Unfortunately, today's work first includes Selyse, tiresome and as difficult as ever. While she gives us a bit of a laugh at the suggestion that we might one day get to see Stannis suffer through a wedding or a vow renewal of his own, 
we were reminded of her fanaticism, her obsession, and how this is all related to her own fertility. Again, just leaving hints about how she doesn't value Shireen as much as she should. Luckily, it is not Selyse who is John's target right now. He just needs her out of the way, which he gets when Melisandre turns down joining them all at the feast. Selyse is crestfallen, but when John offers up Satin to escort her to the feast, he is interrupted by Sir Malagorn, who will not allow such a thing, as we're reminded of the bad attitude towards Satin that many people have because of his past. Unfortunately, that's another thing the Queen's men and certain members of the Night's Watch have in common. With Selyse out of the way, he can talk to Melisandre now, even as she herself is busy muttering about how dangerous Patchface is. John doesn't really care for that, but it's definitely intriguing for us. John instead wants to know if there's been any sign of Stannis in her flame visions, so apparently her mistaking Alice for Aya hasn't been enough for John to lose faith in them completely. That's not to say he 100% trusts them either, but when they are one of your only options for information of the far-off world, you might as well check them. When I search for him, all I see is snow. So that's a call back to Melisandre's POV chapter, where we believe that she looks for Stannis, but instead sees John when considering the Azor high role. But also, it's much more literal this time, because we know Stannis is indeed obscured by snow in real life. So this goes some way to restoring our own faith in Mel's visions. Sometimes they are genuinely right, it's more her interpretation that's up for the issue. Again, as we saw in her POV. John updates us on his efforts to send Stannis his learned info on Arnov, Karlstuck and the planned betrayal. We already discussed last time out how critical that information is going to be in Stannis' current situation, where they're really hoping for Arnov to come along and help them, they're going to walk it straight into his arms. But we know Stannis has left Deepwood Mott, and it doesn't look to be anywhere discoverable by a raven anytime soon, so we can assume he's not going to get this update in time. Taicho is also headed off in the hunt for the king, but considering the storm we know he's headed into, we're probably not overconfident on his chances either. Rereaders, though, will know that this is the start of events that will eventually deliver Taicho and the critical information, and some others, to Stannis' camp, but not for some time yet. John wants them all to consider the possibility that Stannis has already fallen, whether it be to the cold, or the snow, or anyone else. If he has, it obviously changes everything for John and the Night's Watch's situation, so he really needs to know. Of course, Melisandre won't even entertain the possibility because she is so obsessed with the Azor High idea that failure seems like a literal impossibility to her, as she displays by falling back on her smoke and salt theories. John doesn't care for those prophecies much, just like me, although he does casually point out the flaws in Mel's logic in terms of these smoke and salt theories, which is pretty telling. Instead, he asks after Mance. If it wasn't Aya turning up on this horse, and Mance didn't go to collect her anyway, then where the hell is he and what is he doing? Has he found Aya somewhere else? Is he still trying to bring her back at all? Or has he gone back on their deal and is up to something who knows what? John will have a lot of guilt if so. If he's just let Mance out to wreck havoc here, there and everywhere, that's going to be an issue for him. But Mel still only sees snow, which we again know to be true because Winterfell is caked in the stuff right now and that's where Mance is. So again, we see that she can be right, but how much does that matter if she can't interpret them properly all the time? It's still going to be a big cost. As John updates us about a similar storm keeping his hard home rescue squad at Eastwatch, Melisandre reminds him of what else she is seeing in the fire. She tells us here, I am seeing skulls, and you. I see your face every time I look into the flames. The danger that I warned you of grows very close now. So that tracks with what we've been reading. We've been watching Bow and Marsh, and this latest move by John certainly doesn't help things. Now the Queen's men are here to complicate matters as well, and we've had that sense of building, and we know we're coming to the end of the book. So it's high tension all round about these daggers in the dark that we assume are going to appear pretty quickly. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we're thinking... Probably seen. But John didn't put much faith in this the first time he heard it, and now we see he has lost a lot of trust in these fire visions, when it suits him anyway, due to the mistake over Aya and Alice, and he can't keep that to himself anymore. He's frustrated and he lets it bubble over. Mel covers herself in technicalities, but it is clear that John is unhappy. That possibility of seeing Aya again just meant too much to him, 
And he's going to lash out a bit because it hurt when that was taken away. He got it all built up, it was taken away. Even with Melisandre admitting it was her fault, while she encourages him not to cast off flame visions entirely. The whole debacle has John worrying about her motives even more than before, especially in relation to Mance, and this is just another thing for him to stress about. Melisandre does give him one last piece of advice though. You would do well to keep your wolf beside you, my lord. Now you really need to listen up to this part, John. One, because Ghost is awesome and you should spend as much time with him as possible, but also because he is one hell of a protector, we know that. And is a good sign to remember for John's last chapter, when we'll see him completely go against this advice and then get his comeuppance for doing that. It's a big mistake in the making, so make sure you remember that later on. Since he's not getting any useful answers from Mel, John cuts his losses and moves on to the next order of business, for there is always something else to deal with for him. He moves now to the ice cells, the ones that he inhabited once himself, except they seem even colder than they were then, as John steps inside to wake up Krieg and Karstark. The man's brief stay in the cells has not agreed with him, as John hoped. He looks a pathetic creature as he tries to claim that John has acted illegally, but as we noted earlier, John was too clever for that. Now it is a question of whether everyone will bother to verify those details that John did act correctly when this becomes public knowledge, or are they just going to run with the optics of how this looks? John imprisoning a northern lord doesn't look great, does it? Well, the answer to that of how likely it is depends on how they want to twist the narrative to their own means, but John knows the truth and he knows he took all necessary measures to not give Cregan a legal leg to stand on. Alice, on the other hand, was someone he could officially protect if he did this, so that's what he did. John probably quite enjoys giving the news of Alice's wedding, given that he knows it ruins Cregan's and Arnolf's plans to usurp House Karstark. Again, it comes back to the argument of where Harrion is alive, down in the south still, or whether he's been killed. That's a really important part of all this. Although, as John points out, whether he has or hasn't, it doesn't deliver Carhold to Cregan or Arnov anyway, but to Alice, she's next in line, and she has just chosen to marry Sigourn, and therefore shares Carhold with him if she is in the new lady, so that uncles have no claim whatsoever. As expected at this news, Cregan lashes out at this wedding in itself. Clearly, he's pissed at his plan being nixed, but we also see some of the reaction to Alice specifically being married to a wildling that we expected. Some of this frustration is for his own situation, but some will be genuine rage, a rage that is going to be shared by many others. Firstly, that his house is mixed with wildlings, which is a pretty big no-no for these upper Northmen, remember, where we're talking about in terms of Carhold, and also his assertion that this is all part of John's grand plan to let the wildlings come and take over the North, or take all the jobs, or whatever the latest fairy tale complaint is. Again, unfortunately a bit too real for us here in the real world. We definitely know that line of thinking isn't restricted to this ice cell, even if Cregan is a lot more direct in telling John what so many unfairly think of him. Or maybe he's just bloody cold and is trying to goad John into making a mistake. Because he really does go for it here. He even copies Rickard Karstark in his invoking of the shared blood between Stark and Karstark. But John is too ironclad in his control and does not react to these many insults. So Cregan moves to his next point. The men of Carhold will never accept this wilding husband and this has all been for naught. John points out that this wilding husband comes with 200 thens which might change some minds. But Alice already believes the castle will accept her in general. Most of them know what Ramsay is, most of them are against Cregan and Arnulf, and we can't really confirm this for ourselves, but we sure hope it's true. That doesn't mean 100% of the castle will be on side. Cregan obviously had people helping him, he has family members there still, but Alice and John believe them to be in the minority. So John takes another stab at getting Cregan to concede by offering immunity for these accomplices and family members. But but Cregan says no, he remains resolute. Which does put John in a quandary, to be fair. Much as he might like to execute this awful man, that would only make the situation worse. He's already done way too much in terms of interfering with the realm when he shouldn't. And again, we know the optics of this. It really does look like John picks and chooses and helps out his friends whenever he likes. That's what an outsider would see. 
Killing Cregan might make things easier for Alice, but the optics will become much worse and John will have to answer questions about how fit he is to rule. And we know that to be a bigger issue than John really realises right now in terms of Burmarsh and the general grumbling at Castle Black. On the other hand, letting Cregan go will cause Alice, the North, Stannis and himself yet further problems, so that is obviously not enticing. He wishes that Ned or Benjen were here to advise him, as we all do. In the end, John just decides to keep Cregan here in the ice cell. Basically, he's going to force Cregan's hand by essential torture, getting him so cold that he can't bear it anymore and will give in. That's not really exactly above board, and it doesn't look great on the morality slash honour scale, but what else is there? The only other thing is threatening the return of Stannis, for Cregan surely knows if Stannis does come and he knows of the plot, then he's doomed. There's no argument Stannis is there. So that's a bit more of a legitimate technique there, and John leaves his prisoner to consider it. We go from cold to hot now as John finally joins the wedding feast. Any sort of feast or celebration is a rare occurrence indeed at Castle Black, so everyone should do their best to enjoy it, especially Alice, because she's awesome. John cares for her, she's cool, and the info that she's delivered on Arnov is war-changing like we've said, so he and we want the best for her. He wants her to enjoy this day. But John, being John, he doesn't completely take his own advice as he thinks on their food stores and how much of it is being used today. But we do get the cool note of Owen playing some music with some of the wildlings, so that's pretty cool, isn't it? Even if John is being grumpy, can't he just can't turn off, but then you wouldn't be, would you? Here is where we are told of more guests arriving for the wedding. Two of the elder clan chiefs who could not join Stannis on his march into winter, but have come to see one of their countrywomen marry a wildling. With them came wet nurses for Gilly's son, which is always so important to remember, as well as 17 fighting men. Now, I actually must admit, I can't remember if these guys, Torgan Flint and Brandon Norrie and their men, are still here at the end of the book, at the end of John's last chapter. If they are, then that's two more parties to consider in the chaos. I'd have to check that. I can't remember. Maybe you can. But keeping it to the present, John wonders if it is good that these people are here. There's the nature of who is getting married to consider, the wildling thing again. But on top of that, there is the fact that this is a R'hllor wedding, not a northern wedding. Neither groom nor bride wanted that. It was a requirement thanks to Stannis and Selyse and Mel. So again, we have to wonder if some will claim illegitimacy or will simply be angered further that it went ahead and John either planned it or allowed it. For now at least though, no issues are raised, and since they are in public, that's good for John, so we'll just we'll put that in the maybe part for now. Dancing is something else seen incredibly rarely at the wall, which is to say never. So it's actually a really enjoyable moment for us to see some of the brothers take advantage of such a rarity and truly enjoy themselves. We know what they've been through, we've got a pretty good idea of what's coming for them, so they absolutely should take the moment. And there's some enjoyable notes in there, like Owen or Ulmer of the Kingswood team proving himself a good dancer. We always like any time there's a Wend of the White Fawn mentioned because it reminds us of merit. And generally, everyone's having a pretty good time. But of course, there is always someone on hand to ruin the fun. Here's a quote. He did not like the way some of the Queen's knights were looking at the steward, particularly Sir Patrick of King's Mountain. That one wants to shed a bit of blood, he thought. He's looking for some provocation. So we're again reminded of the hatred for Saturn, unfortunately. And I must admit, for the first time, I did tweet this the other day, it occurs to me, is Satin in danger after John's stabbing? Or a better question is, how much danger is he in? Because he probably is in a considerable amount. Is that when people will take the chance to take out their anger and prejudice on him? There's riled up Queen's men who wants to, there's Black Brothers who want to, and given his background, you get the idea, and I take no joy in mentioning this, that we could see something really, really sick done to this poor guy for John to discover when he wakes. Clearly, we will hope not, but I'm very, very worried about that now. So I'm really, really hoping that George leaves Saturn alone. 
And again, John is right on the mark about Sir Patrick. He does want blood, and he's going to choose the wrong source for it, not too far down the road. So the hints we're getting, the building blocks we're getting for that final John chapter are just building, building, building now, aren't they? John personally doesn't fancy a dance, not even with the bride, so he instead takes some time to discuss with her the characteristics of the Fens, how they are different from the wildlings, yet similar to the Northmen, even though that will still be ignored by protesters to this wedding. That fact is lucky for their purposes of bringing them into House Carhold. This simply wouldn't work with almost any other wildling clan, and yet both Alice and John know she has an important task ahead of her to help make this work. This is a truly important moment in the future of the North, for all humans really, as we further integrate the wildlings. It is a moment in history, and everyone has a part to play, Alice happens to have one of the largest. John seems confident, however. What he is not confident in is how much this will matter if they all starve soon enough, as he asks after the food situation at Carhold. It is not good news, mainly because of Rob's war, and it's a strong bet that this tale would be repeated for nearly every northern lord and lady, so it's very, very worrying. But it is good chapter sequencing, as we've just had Jamie worrying about the same thing down south. As John and Alice make their grim assessment for what this winter will bring, they echo the same story we've already heard from Big Bucket Wool about going out for the hunt when winter comes. Some men will go for battle if the opportunity is there, but a hunt serves the same purpose of protecting the family. In this, much of the North is knit together in the hardships that they must go through, even though they are miles apart, they're really spaced out. They still seem a tighter-knit community than the other kingdoms that we see. And their focus is on family, on the young, and on winter itself, so that's an important moment. It's another connection between these two people in John and Alice, as well as the North at large. John takes advantage of the opportunity to suggest that when hunting time comes, Alice can direct her men and even her boys up to the wall instead of just out into the cold. They can either be of use or they can die with honour in service. John really does take every opportunity, doesn't he? Every man matters, he knows this. As you say, she touched his hand, Carhold remembers. This is a real strong bonding moment between John and Alice here. We've already said it plenty of times, this is a, an honest friendship between these two, and it's a shame that we don't get more. Or maybe we will in the future, here's hoping. Anyway, I think that does echo some of those Aya equals Alice thoughts we had earlier as well. Remember that Cregan tried his best to bring back the rivalry between the two houses from Storm that Rob and Rickard had. And they very, very easily could have kept that going, John and Alice. We saw that when she first arrived at the wall, she was a bit worried, John was a bit worried of the same thing. Luckily, they've chosen, against the nature of all we see in Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms, to put that behind us and basically be smart about it. They're healing the rift between these two major houses, they're letting bygones be bygone, and they're doing the right thing. They are bonding, they're healing, because they are better than the people who have come before. So this is, again, a really strong, heartfelt moment. We really do like to see it. Not like John gets many of these, is it? It's not like anyone does in this entire story, so let's appreciate what we can. I really, really like that. That's a highlight of the chapter for me. With that settled, John allows himself to at least enjoy the food, even if it does come with the unfortunate news that even dear Hob is super against the wild things being part of their lives now. Before that is soon interrupted as well. This time it is Clydus with another letter from Eastwatch, bearing important news. The hard home mission has finally set sail with its 11 ships, although Cotter Pike thinks it is likely to be deadly even before it starts, and he's clearly not happy about going in the first place, but then he never is. It also means a change in command and an Eastwatch. The Maester is gone with Cotter Pike, but presumably Sir Glendon doesn't need him for communication like Cotter does. However, we do have the worry of Sir Glendon being an Alistair Fawn chum. So now we're wondering, is Fawn going to end up there? Or will Glendon rebel in some way in the future against John? We shall have to wait. The more important thing is, the mission is on. They're going to try, they're going to go and try to save all these hundreds upon thousands of people, and that's what matters to John. Although I will say, it's some good timing considering we've just been in the ice cells, and that's what John associates with Sir Glendon when he was pulled out of them by him. 
Alice finally gets her dance with her new husband, just as Sir Axel comes along to bother John again, even if he's been quite agreeable at the beginning, as he talks about the Queen's approval purely because of the fact this was a royal wedding. So we see the value of doing it that way. It just keeps everyone, or keeps the important people, happy. But it doesn't take long for Axel to get ambitious again. At first, he masks it by asking that Sir Patrick and the other Sovereign Knights need some repayment for what they've lost down south, etc., when really, we know he's talking about himself, as John instantly works out when Val is brought up again. This marriage is a good first step, but I know it would please the Queen to see the Wilding Princess wed as well. John sighed. I'll bet he sighs. How many times? As with before, Axel quickly gets onto the fact that Val is supposed to be beautiful, and that's as much a reason for his hunger as anything else. At the same time, he drops the pretense and goes more direct in just asking for her outright. John can see how false his smile is as he starts poking around for Val's exact location, and then somehow, this slime ball gets even slimier when he uses the phrase, if you've broken her to saddle, well, we are both men of the world, are we not? Blech. What a creep. I'm hoping he gets even worse comeuppance than his poor brother did. Yes, we're definitely hoping. Luckily, John's a cool guy and he's not going to listen to such things. So he tells Axel how it is. The big dope obviously doesn't like it, so he lashes out in anger, accusing John of keeping Val for himself because that's obviously what he would do in John's situation. And he would do his best to acquire a seat, whereas John actually turned down both Bride and Castle when Stannis offered them first. It's an injustice that the world doesn't know about and John isn't about to mention, but we know. Unfortunately, you can just see though how many people have bad opinions about John throughout this chapter. It's too many. Too many because they want that to fit their narrative. Too many that if you just say, well, look at it this way, it does look quite bad. So you, again, really get this sense we've had through the whole book, to be fair, but it's building up now of just too many people being against John. We're going to find the truth out of that soon enough. But rather than open up to an argument with Axel, John is prepping to leave just as the entire hall freezes when they hear a horn. John waits on tenthooks until a second blast come, and then truly all their hearts stop as they wait to see if there is a third, if this is the day the others come. We have seen bad things happen at weddings, wouldn't be completely out of George's realm, would it? But it is not that day. Two blasts only, wildlings have come. Which gives us this final quote. Tormund Giantsbane had come at last. So boom, big moment right there, if we think John is correct in his guess that Val has been successful. That means we get to see Tormund again. That's fun, we like him. John will assumably save hundreds upon thousands of lives, if the negotiations to go well. And this, then, is a better preparation against the others and for the integration of the wild things in general. All of John's plans, not all of them, but this is certainly a big, big one. This is going to help. He's going to hit on several points of his many agendas. This is big news. On the other hand, it's more ammo for John's detractors, isn't it? All those bad feelings, those bad vibes we've just got in this chapter, they're going to get out all the way through dance. Rereaders know we're now streaming towards a major moment in Westerosi history, not just the history of this series, the history of this world, as well as, unfortunately, one of the key factors in John's downfall. Now, we're going to focus on that a lot more next time when we actually get to see all the wild things coming through, and we'll talk about, again, how this is paradigm shifting. This changes everything. There's been nothing like this ever in 8,000 years, as far as we know. So really, this is a sign of how interesting these times are, isn't it? But we'll save that for later. This one is lo running long. I've kept you long enough. We've got enough to talk about. And we're still playing catch-up, so I need to get on. Before we go, though, as well as obviously thanking you for being here and doing all your retweeting and sharing and your talking to me. Always love that. Keep it up. And a big thank you to our patrons as well. But what is coming next week? Four new chapters. <laughs> Big chapters. I can't really understate. We are rushing towards the end now. 
and we're getting to that point where every chapter is an absolute classic. So it's going to be a lot of me talking in the next few weeks. Just prepare yourselves for that. Next week, we shall begin with Daenerys 8, the aftermath of the wedding. Daenerys seeing what this marriage has actually bought her in terms of not really a victory. And then having another important interaction with Quentin Martell. Then we're getting into the really big stuff with Fionn 7, which is unfortunately named Fionn 1. That is his last chapter. That is our final chapter in Winterfell. So, well, I don't need to tell you how important that one is, especially with that cliffhanger ending. Then we're going back to Daenerys for Daenerys 9. And if you want to talk big chapters, well, something big, something with wings, little hint, is coming to Marine. Again, does it get much bigger? And then, just like today, we will end with John. With John 11, and we'll see the wildlings, the mass migration, and everything that comes with it. So really, really big time next week. Hope you're looking forward to that. We shall see you then. Thank you again for today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody.